the news that scares the hell out of the news to the point that they're not reporting on it. Boeing embodies all of the worst aspects of 21st century capitalism and the corrupt military-industrial congressional complex. But you're not going to hear that in discussions on why the 737 MAX 8 keeps crashing. We need social transformation via socialism now, but we first need to create a social democracy that will then hopefully create an opening for the socialism we really need. The attention economy connects us with smartphones to social media while disconnecting us from reality. And it's time we took our lived experience back from profit-seeking corporations that change us from people to commodities. Fighting climate change with new technology has an inherent problem. To create new technology, you need a resources extracted from all around the world, then brought together in one place and manufactured every aspect of which contributes to climate change. Jeff Dorchin will have a moment of truth, which I'll tell you about in a moment. And during my monologue, I may have figured out why America and Americans suck. I'm going to change my, try to change my headphones. There it is. Jeez, oh my God. I, that headphone jack is going to be the death of me. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is Hell, this week's live four-hour This Is Hell. It's being broadcast from the studios of Chicago's Sound Experiment, WNUR 89.3 FM, Evanston, streaming live right now at thisishell.com, podcast in its entirety shortly after our live broadcast, also at thisishell.com. We are rebroadcast in abbreviated form on the South Side's Lumpin' Radio and on Radio Free Moscow in Moscow. Idaho. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash this is hell radio. Follow us on Twitter at this is hell radio and on Instagram, Instagram or Instagram, totally different website and social media platform. You, you wouldn't like it at this is hell. And you can email me at Chuck at this is hell.com. If you would like to hear us on your local radio station, just send us their call letters and we'll contact them. During this week's hell, want to know what's wrong with capitalism in the 21st century? Then all you have to do is look at Boeing, the commercial airliner giant. Want to know the degree to which the Pentagon and its military-industrial-congressional complex are so corrupt? Then look at the case of Boeing. Want to know what happens when you have a corporation in the 21st century incentivized to increase profits at all costs? Then look at the 737 MAX 8 crash sites in Ethiopia and the Java Sea and the nearly 350 lives lost. Want to know the shortcomings of globalization driven by outsourcing and undermining worker rights and organizing? No better example of what's wrong than Boeing. We'll talk to market practitioner and analyst Marsha Marshall Auerbach, who wrote the Salon.com article, Boeing might represent the greatest indictment of 21st century capitalism. 
Packed in the 737 fiasco are all the economic problems we face, crony capitalism, regulatory capture, and offshoring, which was produced by Economy for All, a project of the Independent Media Institute. Marshall is a fellow of the uh, of Economists for Peace and Security at the Levy in Economic Institute at Bard College in New York. Marshall has over 28 years' experience in investment. You can find his writing at salon.com. After discussing the Boeing airline disaster in disasters, I should say, in ways that the mainstream media will not, especially here in Chicago, where local media is a lapdog for Boeing, and any major corporation with headquarters in or near Chicago, may they create jobs, so who cares if they, their incompetence kills hundreds of people. After that critique of capitalism, we'll completely shift gears to a socialist manifesto. We all know capitalism's a train wreck or have that sense that it's an inevitable disaster and are afraid to admit the system's looming demise. So it's time we not only consider an alternative, but figure out how to get to that alternative and what that alternative will eventually, possibly, potentially look like. And we'll try to figure what that socialist future will figure out what that socialist future will be like when we have the return of author and editor Bhaskar Sankara, who has a new book out entitled The Socialist Manifesto, The Case for Radical Politics in an Era of Extreme Inequality. Bhaskar argues that we now have the opportunity for the rise of social democracy with the limited but unprecedented success of the Democratic Socialists of America, like in city council elections here in Chicago. That success could lead to a social democrat as president who could create an environment for activists of all stripes coming together, which in turn could lead to a rise of straight-up socialism. We'll try to wrap our heads around our hopefully socialist future when we hear back from Bhaskar, who is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. You can find out more about Jacobin at jacobinmag.com. Bhaskar has been appearing on This Is Hell since at least two 2013, and if not sooner, following or earlier, following our discussions on a corp- corporation that has all of the pathologies of 21st century capitalism, and how that capitalism must be defeated by socialism, we'll learn about another revolutionary act, and that's the act of doing nothing, of not participating in the attention economy, the economy of the black mirror that commodifies us, changing us from people to goods whose identities are sold to the highest bidder, rising up against that attention economy that begs our attention and instead paying attention to the real world around us and the community that exists within reality can lead us to happier lives, reconnected with our world and disconnected from the virtual distraction that consumes all of us. We'll discover the revolutionary act that is doing nothing when we speak with multidisciplinary artist and writer Jenny O'Dell, author of How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. Jenny has exhibited her art all over the world and has been an artist in residence at Recology SF, that's the dump, the San Francisco Planning Department, the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts, the Palo Alto Art Center, Facebook, and the Internet Archive. Find out more about Jenny at Jenny O'Dell with two L's and 2ns.com. Our final guest on this week's show, once we've discussed how god-awful Boeing is, how great socialism can be, and the revolutionary, revolutionary act of doing nothing, the Green New Deal sounds great. But what happens if that whole new infrastructure that will be necessary to have clean energy at the rate we have it now, at the rate that we have energy now, what happens if the production of that new infrastructure actually contributes to climate change. After all, all of the material we would be creating to build our new clean grid are products that contribute to climate change. And getting those products mined contributes to climate change. And getting all that stuff together in one space contributes to climate change. And then actually producing the necessary resources for a Green New Deal would again 
add to climate change. So how do we fight climate change by not contributing to climate change? We'll try to get to the bottom of that conundrum when we hear from author and poet Jasper Burns, who wrote the Commune Mag article, Between the Devil and the Green New Deal, We Cannot Legislate and Spend Our Way Out of Catastrophic Global Warming, which you can find at communemag.com. Jasper is managing editor at Commune. Find out more about Jasper at jasperburns.net. That's B-E-R-N-E-S dot net. Then we'll wrap the whole show up with a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. This week, Jeff Dorchin remembers nostalgia. And I think I figured out why, as Americans, we're total dicks. And not in a good way, either. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's This Is Hell as Alex Jerry. Alex, what's new about you? Uh, I've been so sick this week that I, I held a puddle of something to my nose and tried to determine whether it was feces or vomit or human or canine. Oh, nice. That's that's fantastic. I never got to the bottom of it. <laughs> By the way, do not use the restroom today unless you want the bottoms of your shoes to be sticky because apparently somebody spilled a beer in there. Brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think we can be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is Hell, and Alex has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is the second favorite cure of the Irish breakfast roll. According to the final hangover cure that we will take from the article at IrelandBeforeYouDie.com, headlined, Ranked, Ireland's 100 Favorite Hangover Foods, there's only one thing worse than having a hangover, it's having to go to work with a hangover, and that's where our second favorite hangover cure comes in. You may remember the favorite was the Irish ham sandwich known as the Jambon. Maybe. I'm pronouncing that right. A breakfast roll has all the greasy goodness of the full Irish breakfast, but you can eat it on the go. The breakfast roll is a fresh baguette holding all the ingredients of a full Irish. That's sausage, bacon, black and white pudding, tomatoes and mushrooms, with the occasional fried egg and or hash brown and smothered in lashings of creamy butter and brown sauce. And if you keep all that down with a massive hangover, then I guess you deserve to be going to work. That makes this week's hangover cure the second favorite cure of the Irish breakfast roll. I thought a full Irish was a sex act, and I think I've done it. I guess I'm wrong. You are listening to God's favorite radio show. Prove us wrong. This is hell. Americans are kind of dicks. I should know. I am one. An American who's kind of a dick. But I could never really put my finger or my whole hand on exactly what makes me and so many other Americans so annoying, so obnoxious, so simultaneously arrogant and full of hubris at one moment, then covering or cowering in exaggerated fear of dangers and risks that often don't even exist. But that doesn't stop us from lashing out and taking futile swipes at ghosts that don't exist. That is, until we drop bombs and shoot missiles and turn live innocent people into actual ghosts that now roam whatever afterlife may or may not exist. Why, if we're so freaking powerful with the most well-resourced and most technologically sophisticated military in the world, with the world's largest arsenal of the most destructive weapons of mass destruction. Why are we so afraid, even cowardly in the face of, I don't know, speedboats armed with missile launchers that are clearly no match for any of the vessels within the U.S. fleet? Look around and see how vulnerable we are. There are myriad public facilities and spaces that could easily be targets for terrorism, but are not. So why aren't they? I'm legally freaking blind, and I see dozens of soft targets daily. 
Immediately following 9-11, rumors spread that jihadists were traveling U.S. highways in the beds of tarp-covered pickup trucks. The trucks would then presumably pull in front of you. A terrorist would pop up from under the tarp that's in the bed of the truck and fire an RPG at your car. Of course, it never happened. But here in the U.S., we're so paranoid that many dumbasses believed it and still believe it actually happened to this day. Look, I get it. My ass is paranoid as hell, too. I was raised in paranoia. We were less than a mile from the Detroit border at 8 Mile Road, and my dad did everything he could to instill racist fear in all of us. Of course, he had some reason to be afraid. Our home was broken into three times when I was a kid, never by a person of color, including one time when I was the first person to the house and wondered why there was a window broken and a rag on the ground. That's when I learned that not only do rags prevent you from cutting your hand when breaking a win- window, it actually muffles the sound. Who knew? My dad did, and he told me so at that moment. And my grandmother's home on Detroit's east side within the city limits had been broken into several, into several times, so we all kind of had a reason to be a little bit fearful. My father would tell me how every night he would get up and walk around the house to do a burglar check, as if when we were asleep at any time, robbers could break into our house. It wasn't until years of living in fear later that I realized that what my dad could admit to and covered up with this frightening story of criminals outside our home waiting to pounce, what he didn't want to tell me was he was an old man who needed to get up often because of a weak bladder. There were no burglars, but that burglary check instilled in me deep-rooted fear of Groups of armed strangers, all non-white, of course, based on my father's worst racist nightmares as they roam the streets looking to take what they want and the only thing you can do about it is to kill them with a gun. It's not like that paranoia goes away when you finally mature. It's still there because at some point that fear served you well. Your heightened awareness and attention as you constantly believe you are living a life in danger can actually save you from horrible situations. Of course, always being in that state of awareness and fear of attack is a horrible way to lead your life for the off chance that maybe once it just might save you. That fear and paranoia can even affect the way you view others, even leading to patriarchy and misogyny. I learned from my father to protect my girlfriend. I assured her mother and father that she would always be safe with me, to which they were very grateful. But that heightened awareness makes me quick to react, often without thinking, and at times even lately that anger built up by fear of the other can lash out unfairly and violently. It can also lead to disempowering the person you mean to protect the most. It, it absolutely sucks. So when you are living this daily life guided by risks and dangers that incubate fear inside of your soul to the point that you are certain you need a gun to protect your home, of course you are going to lash out with violence toward others, and especially toward the other, the other that's so far away they'll never hurt you, but your support for war or policing policies will kill them. And that's where anthropologist Ruben Anderson says we find ourselves today in his new book, No-Go World, which we discussed on our show a couple weeks ago. Then last week, Black Agenda reports Danny Haifong dissected American exceptionalism and American innocence. That's when I put Danny and Ruben's work together in my head, and I think I figured out why we're such dicks as Americans. Not only do we live in fear as we look at the entire world as a place of dangers and risks, but we think we're the best thing since, well, ever. We are the greatest country ever with the greatest military and the greatest wealth the world has ever seen, so of course we're the best. That arrogance insists that we 
are the best and know what's best for everyone else in the world. And anyone trying to be like us or trying to force them to be like us makes all the sense in the world. Why wouldn't everyone want to be like the United States? So let's go put a gun to their heads and force them to change if necessary. After all, it's for their own good. Let's go into their country, change their laws, overthrow their elected leaders that we don't respect, that we don't support, that don't support the U.S. and its corporations from profiting from their resources so they can be more like us, the best. And none of it is wrong because we're only doing what's best for them and what's obviously best for them is to be more like us. Now imagine that individual person who is raised in that culture, a violent freak fueled with paranoia for the other, constantly seeking out all the dangers that exist, no matter how small or improbable, while simultaneously knowing that they are the best the world has ever had to offer, and all their sins are nothing more than mistakes you committed with others' best interests at heart. What you have created is a monster, a creature who thrives on fear, who only sees danger, who is afraid of all they don't understand, armed to the teeth to fend off this fabled other, will take all their stuff, their family, even their life. Yet this travesty of a being believes it is the greatest beast to ever walk the earth, and all their actions are warranted. And if they do unintentional damage, so be it. They're excused. I began this by saying Americans are dicks. I take that back. You can have fun with dicks. We're not dicks. We're monsters. Maybe we should build a wall to keep all us monsters inside and away from the world we've played a huge part in destroying. And maybe that's why this is hell. If you are an artist or you know an artist that would be a welcome addition to our annual This Is Hell, This Is Art show during our annual listener appreciation and anniversary party on July 27th. Email me your or their art, and we'll definitely consider it to be part of the 2019 show. Again, email me your art or someone's art you like to chuck at thisishell.com, and they could be part of this year's annual This Is Art show that happens during our annual listener appreciation and anniversary party every year. We're also looking for musicians to perform as well, so if you are an artist or a musician, or you want to suggest artists or musicians to take part in our anniversary and listener appreciation party this year at Carrie's on July 27, email me at chuckatthisishell.com. This week's question from hell is, what are you not doing right now? What are you not doing right now? All replies right on air during the third hour of this week's show. This week's winner gets one of the books featured on this week's show. Jenny O'Dell's How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. Again, the question from hell is, what are you not doing right now? Leave your response right now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Listen during the third hour of this week's show to hear all the responses and find out if you've won. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, Boeing embodies all the worst aspects of 21st century capitalism and the corrupt military-industrial congressional complex. We need social transformation now. We can overcome the attention economy that's consumed our reality through the revolutionary power of doing nothing. Fighting climate change with new technology means possibly contributing to climate change. During the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin remembers nostalgia. We'll also have Rotten History listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media, what we've been doing on our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. We might continue reading late 1980s entries by Cult of the Dead Cow Hacker, Psychedelic Warlord, who you may know as Beta O'Rourke. We want to remind you about our upcoming anniversary and listener appreciation party, as I just did. Of course, we'll have the question from hell. We have some listeners to thank for sharing This Is Hell, others for supporting This Is Hell, and we'll tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of the show. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's This Is Hell, Alex Jerry. 
Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell sanity in talk radio. So clearly, sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell. One corporation embodies all of the diseases that currently infect 21st century capitalism, and that virus may have led to the deaths of, of nearly 350 people in Boeing 737 MAX 8 airliners. Here to help us look at the big picture of what's wrong with capitalism by focusing on what's wrong with Chicago-based Boeing, market practitioner and analyst Marshall Auerbach wrote the Salon.com article, Boeing Might Represent the Greatest Indictment of 21st Century Capitalism, which was produced by Economy for All, a project of the Independent Media Institute. You can find the article at Salon.com, and you can find out more about Economy for All at Independent Media Institute.org. Welcome to This Is Hell, Marshall. Thanks, Chuck. Uh, good morning, and thanks for having me. You can follow Marshall on Twitter at M Auerbach. That's M A U E R B A C K. You write Boeing has a totally unsustainable business model, one that has persistently ignored the risks of excessive offshoring, the pitfalls of divorcing engineering from basic R&D function, the perils of demodularization, and the perverse incentives of shareholder capitalism, whereby basic safety concerns have repeatedly been sacrificed at the altar of greed. How is Boeing both unsustainable, as you describe it, and at the same time, the world's largest aerospace company and leading manufacturer of commercial jetliners, defense, space, and security systems, and service provider of aftermarket support. How can it be both unsustainable and the market leader in its field? Well, uh, to answer your second uh, question first, um, it was once a very successful uh, company. Uh, you know, it, it was known as the Queen of the Skies in the uh, from in the in the golden age of uh, global aviation. Uh, by the way, it, it was uh, largely uh, Seattle or based at that time and had a largely unionized workforce. Um, so that may be more than coincidental. But but it, it was a a strongly well run company. The reason it still exists today, in in, in spite of the uh, pathologies I described, is because there's there's essentially only one other bit of competition, and that's Airbus in, in Europe. So you have a duopoly, and um, it's really a bit of a market failure because uh, uh, you know unfortunately consumers don't have an alternative available to them other than those two airlines. In spite of the fact that, um, as you pointed out, um, they, they keep uh, producing increasingly lousy airlines, not just the 737, but uh, the, the Dreamliner, uh, the 787, is also um, has also been characterized by lots of problems since its uh, introduction about a decade ago. Does that does the fact that there is a duopoly, as you describe it, does that contribute to the pathologies that you see occurring within Boeing when it comes to 21st century capitalism? Does that duopoly cause the situation that leads to the pathologies that you see? Well, not necessarily. I, it, it simply means that there's not a lot of available choice out there. I'm, I'm not, uh, you know, break it up because it's a, it's a duopoly. The problem comes from the fact that, um, as you say, they've started to offshore a lot of their uh, production, and, and, and they were warned against doing this by as early as 2001 uh, by one of their former engineers, because um, you need to have a, a relatively cohesive industrial ecosystem. You need to have the engineers and the R&D uh, people working closely together so that you can um, stress test and, 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 um, and catch problems early. That, that, that's a very important consideration. But when you're, when you're making... Um, um, one uh, piece of equipment in, in, in Japan and another in Italy, 
that becomes harder to do. That that's the problem of uh, demodularization, which is, was described in a Harvard Business Review piece a, a few years ago. And the other problem is that um, Boeing is now not just a, a civilian aircraft manufacturer, but it's also doing a lot of work for the Pentagon. And that in itself is problematic because uh, the the two uh, sectors have different um, cultures. Instead of working towards uh, being uh, efficient and cutting costs, as you normally do in a civilian uh, company, uh, the, the military works on a cost-plus basis. So what they basically say to a company like Boeing is um, we'll give you um, uh, your cost plus, uh, say, 15%. Uh, there's a, a fixed margin. So that uh, is not only uh, terrible for the taxpayer, it's all the company, because it actually gives a perverse incentive to Boeing to expand and be as wasteful as possible because they can fatten their margins that way. And that's one problem. And the second is that um, it's it's what um, a long-time uh, uh, employees at the Pentagon, Chuck Spinney and Pierre Spray, called political engineering, which is that, you know, you have an increasingly expensive military boondoggle. It wastes money, but um, you, you ensure that it never gets, the, the plug is never pulled because you, you put as many uh, operations in as many states as possible, which is highly inefficient. But when it comes to um, Congress saying, uh, you're wasting money, we're going to cut back your budget. Um, you know, Boeing just has to go to one of their uh, uh, friendly congressman and say, well, okay, well, um, you know, we'll we'll be cutting um, jobs in in your particular uh, district, and um, they thereby rally uh, political support, which keeps the wastefulness going, um, and also makes it impossible to uh, to cut back the spending. Would nationalizing uh, military spending, defense spending, would that end the private public clash? Would that end the political engineering that you see that caused so much problems with the uh, military industrial congressional complex? You know, I don't. I don't really know because I. I. I think that you know this is a problem. Obviously, the, the military-industrial complex is a problem that we you know, we've been warned about since uh, you know Eisenhower's famous uh, final speech in 1960. But uh, and I, and I think unfortunately uh, the military has got its tentacles now tied into so many different uh, aspects of, of of government that nationalizing it, I don't think would 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 solve the problem. I I think you would need to have really whole-scale uh, political, institutional political reforms were implemented before you could do anything about it. And, and the other point I would bear in mind is that, you know, and Matt Taibbi, amongst others, has been very good at pointing this out, the, the, the budgeting process for the Pentagon is a, is a complete mess. Uh, that they, they, When they've audit, tried to audit um, uh, the, um, the, the Department of Defense, it's, it's just turned up one nightmare after another. And it's, this has been going on, again, for, for decades. And those who have been whistleblowers within the Pentagon have usually been ostracized and so um, and, and shut down. So, so the problem never gets fixed. If Boeing's problems are caused by the perverse incentives of shareholder capitalism, as you call it, whereby basic safety concerns have repeatedly been sacrificed at the altar of greed, are the nearly 750 deaths in the recent 737 MAX 8 crashes on the hands of the individual shareholders themselves, even if they are shareholders who may be unaware that they own Boeing stock and discover they do within some mutual fund or other bundled investment? Are these crashes not Boeing's fault, but the fault of shareholder capitalism, which is imposed upon Boeing and is out of their control? Therefore, it's the shareholder's fault? Well, you know, it's an interesting way to look at the problem because, on the one hand, the 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 basis of shareholder capitalism, which was initially enunciated by Milton Friedman, is that they're the owners of the company, the shareholders, 
and uh, therefore you should always be directing your operations to maximize their returns as opposed to, say, employee welfare or, or making a safe, uh, reliable plane. And yet, as you pointed out, if that's true, logically, they should be the ones to be held accountable. But of course, they would um, rightly say, well, we don't really know the ins and the outs of, uh, of the operations of, uh, the, of the air aviation industry, and we don't really have the engineering expertise, which, which I think highlights the, the stupid premise of shareholder capitalism. I mean, I, I was once a fund manager, and you know, I was a, you know, the, the classic jack of all trades, master of none. You, know, you, you learn a little bit about a lot of different industries, but, but there is no way I would be able to advise someone with 30 years experience in the, the aero in, in the aviation industry of how to um, build a, a proper plane and yet that's the silly premise underlying uh, shareholder capitalism and the other the other problem is that um, increasingly executive pay and not just in Boeing but this is a, a problem that is pervasive in American capitalism right now the the the, the incentives uh, are uh, towards higher pay are largely uh, linked to the performance of the the stock price as opposed to the underlying operations of the company itself. So you could have a, a, a company that has been has been degraded for years, but through forms of financial engineering, is actually uh, performing well. It consistently beats its quarterly uh, earnings per share number. The the Wall Street uh, supporters um, jump on it and, and and push the stock up, and, and everything looks great. I mean, the, the um, General Electric under Jack Welch um, was a classic illustration of this. Uh, but Boeing is is merely the uh, the, the the next in a, in a long line of companies that that pulls this kind of stuff. So, what I'm saying is that you need to change the incentives. You have to make um, um, executive compensation predicated on on the um, the airline uh, how it, the airline itself uh, actually. Uh, performs as opposed to um, how the stock price performs, and and I, I do also incidentally think that many of the uh, executives who were res- who were responsible for these decisions should be tried on manslaughter tri- charges. You describe how the veteran commercial pilot and software engineer George Travis's article, how the Boeing 737 MAX disaster looks to a software developer, design shortcuts meant to make a new plane seem like an old one, old familiar one, are to blame, which was posted at the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers website Spectrum, is a devastating takedown of a company that once represented the apex of civilian aviation, whose dominance has been steadily eroded as it has increased its toxic ties to the U.S. military. Is there a lesson in Boeing's relationship with the military, a warning to other corporations who may want to get in on the military-industrial congressional complex? Is it is it not as good a gig as we might think it is? Yeah. Uh, Gregory Travis, uh, I've, I've spoken to him many times, and we've actually co-authored another piece on this. Uh, um, the, the, uh, the preliminary report that's come out, uh, it's, it's available publicly right now, is, is, is pretty damning. But, but yeah, I, I think uh, the, the military uh, seduces because, you know, it's a ready-made market. It never seems to shrink, and uh, they're offering a guaranteed margin. But as I said, uh, it, 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 it is inherently corrupting. And, and also, um, it's, it's very problematic from a society's point of view that that you 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 don't want um, um, America's most talented engineers, software designers, etc., working uh, for in enhancing uh, the, the military. You'd rather have them deployed productively in the civilian economy. So, it not only in, engenders 
sloppy working practices um, within a, a hitherto civilian company, but it, it, it just draws more and more people towards the military and, and, and therefore misallocates uh, resources in a highly destructive way. So it, it, there, there are many warning signs, and, and I think it's, it's really literally a Palestinian bargain if um, a company decides it wants to get in bed with uh, the Pentagon. You also point out that Travis largely restricts his analysis to the 737, but his article illustrates pathologies long evident at Boeing and the FAA. We already touched a little bit on the relationship between Boeing and the Pentagon. How would you describe the relationship between Boeing and the FAA? Well, that's an, uh, an equally instructive uh, uh, story, um, and because it's, it, in many respects it has parallels to the 2008 financial crash. and um, The FAA is increasingly subject to what we might call regulatory capture, which is to say that, um, you know, it's a bit like the uh, the, the criminals looking after the, the, the jails as opposed to the uh, management. It's it's the, the expertise of the Federal Aviation Authority has been uh, increasingly diminished. Uh, they, um, they get offered more money in the, in the private sector, and increasingly their ability to um, oversee uh, the, the industry for which they're responsible has been compromised. And in, in, because of that, uh, the FAA has gone to Boeing and said, look, we don't really understand what's going on here. Why don't you help us? Uh, why don't you effectively self-certify the planes? In other words, you, you tell us um, what, when, when it's safe and uh, we'll bet it. And that, that's essentially what's happened with the 737. But it's also happened um, in regard to the, the 787 Dreamliner. So it's, it's another case where you have a very, very complex engineering problem the uh, relevant regulatory body doesn't have the ability to oversee it properly, so they effectively subcontract that um, uh, pro- that uh, decision making to the company itself, and that's just a recipe for disaster. So why isn't there any cultural blowback, political blowback, from this kind of self-regulation and oversight that we see that has failed uh, the people who were flying in the Max uh, 737 Max 8s, but as you point out, failed with uh, the Wall Street collapse back in the financial collapse back in 2008? What ex- what explains to you why is it that we are not backing off from this idea of self-regulation and oversight if it has failed so in deadly ways a few times? Well, there's uh, the, the the short answer is money. Um, uh, we saw this after 2008. Uh, within months of getting bailouts uh, from uh, uh, the, the government, uh, Wall Street started to use some of that money to aggressively lobby against the kinds of regulatory changes that would have tightened things up considerably. And uh, they effectively succeeded in, in gutting uh, Dodd-Frank, which was a fairly minimal bit of, of, of uh, regulation and legislation to begin with. The other point is that um, with, with regard to Wall Street, it's very hard for people to understand um, what a toxic derivative might do in terms of um, um, blowing up our financial system. Uh, a plane crash, on the other hand, is something that people intuitively understand. And as the magnitude of these problems with the FAA and Boeing, uh, the incestuous linkages become more readily apparent, as I think they are in current congressional hearings, I think the political pressure will um, be uh, to for the FAA to change uh, many of its practices. Whether that extends to other industries, I doubt. I suspect you'll need another type of crash uh, uh, before um, we start looking at the the broader implications of, of the kind of regulatory system we've we've adopted over the last uh, several decades.
You write, Boeing's failures resonate with the public in a way that no complicated financial fraud possibly could. It takes a certain level of, as you're saying, technical expertise to understand how the toxicity of financial derivative poses dangers to an economic system. But everybody instinctively understands the tragic impact of a plane crash like the doomed Lion Air and Ethiopian Airlines 737-related accidents. Financial frauds, complexities, far-reaching effects make it difficult to find those responsible and hold them accountable. It can even lead to blaming the victims for their own involvement within the financial system that is later proven to be fraudulent, uh, or a universalizing of blame by contending anyone who has any investment in the financial markets touched by fraud is also complicit, thus diffusing that blame again. Is it any more or less difficult to hold the airline industry and its executives accountable and responsible for their shortcomings than it is the financial industry? Is it any easier to charge Boeing executives with manslaughter than it is to charge Wall Street executives for fraud? Well, I I, I think it's easier in the sense that it's probably easier to establish a clear nexus, as you said, uh, uh, and as I wrote, um, a plane crash is something people instinctively understand. But I would argue that even in regard to Wall Street, um, you know, Congress really dropped the ball. Um, my friend Bill Black, who is, who is a, a professor of criminology and, and uh, an economist who's looked at this, uh, um, has pointed out, and, and as have many others, that, you know, the, 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 the Wall Street uh, ensured uh, that, um, you know, they took care of so many different congressmen. And I think also um, the Obama uh, administration made a, a, a fatal miscalculation in, in, in effectively refusing to look for real financial crimes. They, they made a, a decision, it was really a decision made by Tim Geithner and Eric Holder, that you know we can't prosecute um, the two big-to-fail uh, bankers um, because if we do so, it's going to create another financial crash. Now, I, I disagree with that. I, I think that uh, there was a very, very different approach taken in the 1930s. The executives did go to jail, likewise with the savings and loans. So to me, that represented a profound um, political failure, and, and we're going to pay the price for that when the next um, financial crunch comes. I, I, it, it is not that... Um, you can't uh, find the crime, but if you don't even bother looking for it, then it's very, very hard to prosecute people. Do you think that lack of prosecution of those crimes in any way contributed to the fact that in 2016 we have a Republican, we have Donald Trump being elected president? Yes. In fact, I've written about this before. Um, um, you, uh, if, if, in many respects, I would say that it foamed the runway for, for, for Trump because if you if you start if you, if you refuse to prosecute white collar crime, uh, Jesse Eisinger at uh, ProPublica has written a lot about this. If you refuse to be more aggressive about prosecuting it, then you you effectively make it much easier for a grifter like Trump to to come to the White House. And and by the way, I I would also argue that you know there there are multiple examples of of, of Trump's um, corruption. Uh, I think every day he's in the White House, he virtually uh, uh, violates the emoluments clause of the Constitution on, on a daily basis with those hotels, for example, that he has in Washington, D.C. He profits uh, from his, his uh, position in the, in the White House, which is a constitutional violation. So, uh, But instead, we, did, we didn't, because we didn't really um, look at that problem and, 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 and uh, uh, tackle it under Obama, it's harder to establish the president that you're going to go after Trump that way. So, it, so instead, we, we, we went after him on the basis of Russia, which, whatever your thoughts on Russiagate, it, it was much more problematic uh, to, to establish a, a direct uh, link uh, between the two problems. And, and um, therefore, we got a very unsatisfying conclusion to Mueller's investigation. 
You describe how Boeing couldn't get it right because the company had shifted large chunks of its design and manufacturing facilities to disparate parts around the globe, too far apart geographically, in fact, to monitor everything properly, at which point you quote professors Gary Pisano and Willie Shu in the uh, Harvard Business Review, writing, as a result, Boeing encountered problems assembling the pieces such as the horizontal stabilizer from Alenia Aeronautica in Italy and the wing box from Mitsubishi Heavy Industries in Japan. Significant redesign and rework were required, and the program suffered major delays. Are Boeing's failures the failures of globalization? Do the crashes of the 737 MAX 8 jets by Boeing reveal the shortcomings of globalization? Yeah, I think so in a lot of ways. For for one thing, I would say that um, if you uh, just engage in global labor arbitrage to find the cheapest possible labor anywhere around the globe, and and we facilitated that uh, by encouraging offshoring, um, it, it, it... you, you effectively, first of all, you, you degrade your, your national skill sets. Um, many of the uh, skills that um, historically have been done in the U.S. are, are, are lost uh, to overseas uh, competitors. But there's another um, um, insidious aspect to this, which is that um, it's a soft option to, um, to just go for lowest cost uh, uh, labor around the, the globe. It, it, it means that you um, resist investing to upgrade your your technological expertise and and and, and moving up the technology curve so, so that you ensure that you got get high paying highly skilled jobs remaining in the, in this country and in that sense for example um, the U.S. is very very different than countries like um, Germany or Japan which I think have retained viable um, and um, and quite vibrant manufacturing uh, systems because they've they've made a conscious policy decision to keep those onshore and instead of um, uh, using the soft option of offshoring uh, to get cheaper labor, they have just invested more technologically to go higher up in the, in, in the cost curve. So Germany, for example, continues to uh, produce um, high-end profitable cars, which um, are, are um, there's demand for them globally, whereas uh, GM, for example, uh, gets a bailout and then it closes uh, domestic factories in the U.S. and, and expands operations in China. That's, that's a, another classic illustration of the problem. You write how the links between the Pentagon and Boeing began in the late 1990s when the U.S. Department of Defense helped to engineer a merger of Boeing and McDonnell Douglas, the latter, McDonnell Douglas, an important supplier of combat aircraft in the United States. Why did the Pentagon seek the merger of a civilian aviation company with a military aviation company? How is this viewed as being good for the Pentagon, for Boeing, and for McDonnell Douglas? Uh, well, the Bo- uh, the Pentagon wanted to make sure they had um, de- uh, enough domestic uh, suppliers to to give them uh, aircraft. Uh, in fact, um, they engineered it. It was really a covert bailout because uh, McDonnell Douglas had had um, had uh, started to um, uh, do the same kinds of things that Boeing has all, all, all subsequently done, which is that they they began to offshore a lot of their operations. They began to disinvest. Uh, they began to produce an increasingly shoddy uh, and problematic aircraft. They were they were actually not uh, performing well, so uh, the 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 merger was actually a politically engineered one. And even though they called it a merger, effectively, it was Boeing taking over a pretty toxic company, McDonnell Douglas, because the Pentagon didn't want to be solely reliant on on Lockheed to to produce the planes, and uh, and that's why it originally took uh, took place. But as, as I said in the article. Um, one of the engineers who worked for McDonnell Douglas and, and um, then subsequently worked for Boeing 
L.J. Hart-Smith wrote, wrote a piece early in 2001 where he warned uh, Boeing not to engage in the same kinds of practices that his old company, McDonnell Douglas, had engaged in, and, um, and Boeing uh, refused to heed his warnings. Is the is the seven thirty seven eight Max eight is that the outcome of greed or is that too sim- simplistic? Does that indiv- individualize it too much and ignore bigger systemic reasons the disasters happened, why they happened, uh, to some extent, and uh, that they're they're kind of uh, many of these disasters are out of our control or out of even a capitalist corporation's control. Can can we just blame this on greed or is that just too simplistic? Well, it's a largely important consideration because um, what happened was they, they, they produced a, a larger plant, a larger engine. Uh, larger engines tend to be more energy efficient, but in so doing, uh, the the company had to um, place it in a different part of the, of the wing, which made it less aerodynamically stable. Now, uh, the, to have actually uh, fixed the problem properly would have would have entailed uh, substantial modifications to the existing hardware on the, on, on the plane, and that would have been far more expensive. And Boeing uh, clearly didn't want to, um, you know, they, they had a modular approach. They didn't want to completely reconfigure a production line to, to fix the problems of the 737. So instead, what they did was they, they tried to uh, fix the problem with a, with a software fix uh, through the, uh, what they call the Maneuvering Characteristic Augmentation System, MCAS for short. And so the idea was that you um, enable, uh, allow the computers to fix the problem that the 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 the, the uh, expansion of the engine and the, the shift of um, uh, the the distortion of the center of the plane center of gravity was created, but it actually made the the, the problem worse. You you can't really use a a, a computer software uh, problem uh, a solution to solve what is essentially a hardware problem, and 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 um, and it was worse than that because. Uh, they didn't tell the pilots about this this issue, and they didn't allow the pilots to manually override the computer system. So, um, in the Travis article, which I quoted from, and you you mentioned Greg Travis earlier, he talks about he he invokes the image of of Kubrick 2001 and that famous scene with with Hal, uh, where he says, um, you know, Hal essentially tries to take over the aircraft, but ultimately in 2001. Uh, the pilot is able to uh, um, um, deactivate HAL and and prevent further damage from 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 taking place. The problem we had here is that um, the pilots, even though they saw the, the, the something wasn't right, were not able to manually override MCAT. And and in that sense, it's a unique uh, situation because historically, um, computers do most of the flying for in 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 aviation, commercial aviation. But ultimately, uh, if something goes wrong, the pilot has sovereignty, and that wasn't the case here. You write similarly to the 2008 financial crash, this software solution that was supposed to fix the engineering problem of the new 737 failed because it was based on a flawed paradigm. No computer software can fundamentally repudiate the principles of aerodynamics. And in both cases, the regulatory capture and inadequate financial resources accorded to the authority precluded it from stepping in before disaster struck. How difficult would it be to overcome regulatory capture and inadequate financial resources? Well, uh, it's it, first of all, you could pay them more, but of course, we we, we generally in, in, in the post Reagan era like to starve our, our government employees of, of, of proper uh, financial resources. So, <clears throat> excuse me, that's one problem. Um, the second problem is that um, we we um, 
we make things increasingly complex and um, and therefore the regulation, the regulatory framework becomes increasingly complex to deal with that. The, the, the real solution should be um, less financial engineering, simpler, which, which would allow us to have simpler forms of regulation. But that would entail um, demanding that, um, in, in the case of Wall Street, that you, you have less um, complex financial instruments out there, which effectively uh, are, are there to evade regulation and have no real social purpose other than uh, in enhancing uh, the bank's uh, profitability. It's an innovation for innovation's sake. Um, in the case of um, the, the, the FAA and the 737, um, clearly, they, they, you, you, you've just got to get more outside monitoring, and 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 you need to pay people properly to to show that you've got good regulators. But the, the the fact of the matter is, the if if proper hardware modifications were established in the 737, you likely could have had a safer plane. But there was nobody there in the FAA to pick that up because nobody had the expertise. In fact, nobody was actually monitoring this. Uh, what what self certification meant was that you had one guy from Boeing um, doing the checklist for on behalf of uh, Boeing. The other guy from Boeing was doing the job of the FAA. So it made it impossible for there, – there was no early warning system in, in place. Um, in the case of Wall Street, you had a whole bunch of uh, rocket scientists who, who um, created these fancy derivatives. Um, they used um, flawed mathematical models uh, to, um, to justify uh, – to illustrate that these, these – um, um, uh, derivatives were fundamentally sound and wouldn't cause uh, problems. But as as mathematicians have subsequently pointed out, the, the the statistical theories on which they they based their calculations were not long enough or big enough to to uh, get a, a proper kind of measure of what was normal. And therefore, um, you had this so-called once in a thousand type of event. When in fact, it's not a once in a thousand type of event. Any proper statistical analysis would have shown that these these um, financial derivatives were uh, unsafe and, and mathematically unsound. You write that we view technology not as a man-made invention designed to help us, but as an autonomously fixed condition that bears little relation to human behavior. This lack of integration means that complexity overwhelms us rather than enhances our quality of life. It commodifies us. Labor is just a cost input to be replaced, if possible, by a robot. It is no longer viewed as a source of demand. What happens to labor, to people, when capitalism no longer sees them as a source of demand? And what will what will we be seen as if not the demand creators, the demanders in the supply and demand relationship that we have within capitalism? Well, that's a great question, and we used to understand that. Uh, I mean, uh, Henry Ford, for example, when he started producing his Model T, made sure that he paid his his workers an adequate uh, salary so that they could buy the underlying product. Uh, the, 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 the point is that in the 1930s, we learned that um, labor is not just a cost input, but it's a very important source of, of demand. So, so one of the most important insights of people like Keynes is that he realized that um, you know you, you you can't just simply keep reducing wages to reduce costs because you're also diminishing uh, demand. You need to um, um, in, ensure that um, that workers are paid enough so that they can actually uh, buy the stuff and they can buy it out of their their incomes rather than going massively in, in, into debt, which is, again, one of the, the main problems we've had over the last uh, several de- decades. And, you know, the, the other thing is that we have to uh, learn that technology is there as a handmaiden of, of human beings. It's there to make our lives easier. Um, but you can't just simply, 
you know, displace a, a, um, a human being with a machine without trying to figure out how the two might interact together. So um, you, you, you don't just simply want um, to have a self-driving car because, uh, you know, you get accidents and, and um, you've got to simply, you've got to um, respect the fact that you need to incorporate labor into this decision-making process to make the technology more productive. And that, that's an important insight, which we seem to have lost. We, we just think innovation, for innovation's sake, is, is, is great. And, and, and we, we've, we've degraded the role of, of, of human be- beings in the process. Earlier this month, President Trump nominated Acting Secretary of Defense Patrick Shanahan to take that role on permanently. Defense News reported last week key Democrats are signaling that Shanahan will face tough questions and possibly significant resistance. What has already been a bumpy path to him taking over the military's top civilian role, Democrats on the Senate Armed Services Committee are expressing wariness over the former Boeing executives' industry ties. And according to the Defense Department's own biography of Shanahan, he worked as a senior vice president of commercial airplane pro- programs, airplane programs, managing profit and loss for the 737, 747, 767, 777, and 787 programs and the operations at Boeing's principal manufacturing sites. What does Shanahan's nomination by Trump, especially in the wake of these two 737 MAX 8 crashes, and I'm not certain if Shanahan oversaw the profits and losses of the 737 MAX 8 because his Pentagon bio doesn't specify that, what does Shanahan's nomination say to you about the current state of the military-industrial-congressional complex and the Trump administration? Well, it's alive and well, and certainly it's another instance where uh, you know um, the, the so-called draining of the swamp is, is uh, turned out to be another lie. Uh, it, it's actually adding to the swamp. Um, you know, it's a bit like having uh, the head of Goldman Sachs ultimately uh, running uh, the the, uh, the SEC or even the Fed. Well, you can argue that a lot of ex-Goldman Sachs people have run the New York Fed. So this is this is exactly the the, the, the kind of thing that leads to regulatory capture. You want uh, people to have expertise, but you don't want them to be so embedded in the culture of the industries in which they are regulating, uh, so that they are unable to um, do it at a, at a proper arms in a proper arms length manner. You 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 need to have people who understand these um, um, industries, but are not part of these industries. And and um, Shanahan, unfortunately, I, I, I suspect will get the nomination because there is a Republican majority and the, the Republicans don't seem to ever care what the, um, the, the actual electric wants. But, but it, it's, a, it's a perfect illustration. You can't have a Boeing guy um, handling the Defense Department in, in, in the wake of this kind of a problem. Um, it, it exposes everything that's wrong with that. And you need people from the outside who understand the problems and therefore could act as a, a more effective arm's length regulator. We have been speaking with Marshall Auerbach, who wrote the Salon.com article, Boeing Might Represent the Greatest Indictment of 21st Century Capitalism. Marshall is a fellow of uh, the Economist for Peace and Security at the Levy Economic Institute at Bard College in New York, and he has over 28 years' experience in investment management. You can follow Marshall on Twitter at M. Auerbach, A-M-A-U-E-R-B-A-C. Okay, one last question for you, and as it is with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. Would you fly in any Boeing airliner today? 
Actually, I would. Uh, you know, funnily enough, the 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 seven six seven and the seven seven sevens are are excellent planes. Uh, funnily enough, those are the ones that are uh, made largely made in by the unionized workforce in Washington State. So, um, the 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 company is still capable of making a a, a good plane. Um, uh, but I'd be much more wary about the the stuff made out of Charleston. And there's no disrespect to the great state of South Carolina, but even uh, in the article, I, I cite a former whistleblower who points out that there are numerous uh, problems um, at the, South, the Charleston, South Carolina plant, which is a right-to-work uh, state, by the way. So um, I would just say, uh, be careful about the, the the brand you're flying, and um, and and certainly. Uh, um, uh, if you can fly Airbus whenever you can, I would do that too. So, did deunionization and right to work lead to three hundred and fifty, no, nearly three hundred and fifty deaths from plane crashes? Well, I wouldn't say I, that's probably take, going too far, but uh, but I certainly uh, felt that there was no, there were really no problems with the unionized workforce in 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 Everett uh, and, and Renton, Washington. Uh, they, they they produced a great plane for a long time. But again, uh, Boeing wanted to um, have an, another um, cudgel at its disposal to help moderate wage demands uh, and help uh, reduce the influence of the union. So they they relocated to a, a right to work state, um, and a lot of um, uh, companies have done that. Um, the the state of unionization in this country it's in a disastrous state. I think only about nine percent of the population, uh, the working population, is unionized anymore. Uh, and most of that is in the public sector, which seems to be the uh, the new area of attack uh, for uh, the for for Congress, especially the Republicans. So I I, I do w- would like to see um, an administration, a future administration, encourage more unionization because I think that's one of the ways um, we help to um, in- ensure that uh, workers get decent wages and and um, also um, ensure that the the the, um, the quality of the of the work being done is better as well. You get a less demoralized workforce. Marshall, I really appreciate you being on the show this week. You can find Marshall's writing at a re- on a regular basis at Salon.com. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Chuck. Thanks for having me. Enjoyed it. Take care. Manufacturing dissent. Since 1996, this is hell. Capitalism is dying, or at least in its death throes, which may be worse because it's going to want to take us all down with it. But there is a way we can still survive capitalism's implosion, and that's with, you guessed it, socialism. But what that socialism will look like is uncertain. However, how to get there is not. We'll try to figure out how we can get to a more humane socialist future when we have the return of author and editor Bhaskar Sunkara, who has a new book out entitled The Socialist Manifesto. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. In 1927, 92 years ago in Bath, Michigan, a village near Lansing, the state capital, the Bath Consolidated School was devastated by an explosion that could be heard for miles to be forever known locally as the Bath School disaster. Andrew Kehoe, a school board treasurer and electrician whose nearby farm faced foreclosure, had argued against construction of the five-year-old combined elementary and high school built to replace various one-room schoolhouses in the area, and he blamed the consequent rise in property tax for his financial difficulties. Hard to do electrical work for the school, Kehoe had spent months secretly planting a sophisticated system of wiring and dynamite throughout the school. And you gotta wonder why the school would hire, as an electrician, a guy who blamed the school for his financial demise. 
Shortly before the timed explosion at the school, Kehoe had also murdered his wife and detonated a series of dynamite charges on his farm that destroyed his house and killed several horses because I guess he thought his wife and horses were in cahoots with the local school district in destroying his finances. He then drove a Ford truck, built Ford tough apparently, loaded with dynamite and small chunks of metal to the scene of the school explosion, where crowds were frantically trying to rescue the children trapped inside. Hey, who knew someone was killing rescue workers long before the Allies started doing that during the aerial bombardment of Hamburg in World War II? Who knew? At the Bath Schoolhouse, parked amid the crowds, Kehoe detonated the charges in his truck, killing himself and several more people, including the school superintendent. And look, it wasn't the IRA who invented car bombs and suicide bombings. It was this prick. A total of 45 people, mostly children, were killed that day, along with 58 injured, some of whom lost their arms or legs. The massacre made headlines around the world, but was pushed out of the newspapers two days later by Charles Lindbergh's solo airplane flight from New York to Paris. So, Lindbergh must have been in on it, too, with the school district, Keo's wife, and his horses. The Bath School bombing remains to this day the most deadly school killing in U.S. history, and I kid you not, every year descendants of those killed and their families trickle by a spot near High Street where the cupola of the old schoolhouse sits as memorial, although I think it's a replica, but I'm not certain. I was actually there on this day a couple years before we started doing the show, and I witnessed a husband and wife in their 90s sobbing as they stared at the cupola, or a reproduction thereof, who knows. They were there, the only two there, which made it even more intense. It wasn't like it was a crowd. You could only focus on these two people crying. I asked if they knew somebody who died. They just nodded and couldn't stop crying. It was really intense. In Rotten History, 1974, 45 years ago, India carried out its first successful test of a nuclear bomb. I've always wondered when I hear that phrase, first successful test of a nuclear bomb, what exactly does an unsuccessful test of a nuclear bomb look like? Is it worse than a nuclear bomb? Does the thing just not go off like a firecracker? That's a dud. The 10 kiloton underground explosion codenamed Smiling Buddha, and I'm sure Buddha was very proud to have a weapon of mass destruction named after him, blew a massive crater in the Rajasthan desert of India's northwest. One expert described the explosive mechanism as being in the shape of a lingam or phallus as depicted in ancient Hindu art and explained that explosive material was arranged around the plutonium core in a pattern resembling the petals of a lotus. Pretty tasteful for a bomb that could kill millions. The test was billed as a peaceful explosion by Prime Minister Indira Gandhi, whose government had received help from Canada and the United States to build nuclear reactors for generating power. A peaceful explosion? I only know of one of those, and you don't need nuclear reactors from the United States and Canada to generate power for the peaceful explosion I'm thinking of to detonate, as it were. News of the explosion was received with alarm around the world, so I get that. guess that... Uh, peaceful explosion crap of Indira Gandhi's didn't wash. The Canadian government immediately cut off assistance to India, and the U.S. demanded that India cease further testing. Again, these are the two countries who had helped India get the nuclear reactor necessary to develop the nuclear bomb. The Indian nuclear program promptly went underground, which is where it was already physically, but here it's meant metaphorically, as in hidden from view. Meanwhile, India's neighbor and rival Pakistan accelerated research and development of its own bomb, which would be successfully detonated in 1998, 24 years later. So want to know why Pakistan has the bomb? Because the U.S. and Canada essentially giving the bomb to India 
So thanks, U.S. and Canada, for spreading nuclear proliferation around the world. Finally, in Rotten History, 1983, nine years ago today, the lead singer of one of my favorite all-time musical acts, Ian Curtis, lead singer of the British rock band Joy Division, was found dead, having hanged himself a day after receiving divorce papers from his wife, of which he had two. Curtis hung his cat first, doing it with piano wire. Curtis had long suffered from seizures and severe mood swings, and his band had scored hits on the UK pop charts without making much money. Even so, the members of Joy Division were caught unaware by his suicide, but after a hiatus of several months, they resumed their career under the name New Order. Members of the band were so clueless or in denial about Ian Curtis's emotional state that they didn't realize the title of the album the band just dropped right after his death wasn't Closer, C-L-O-S-E-R, but Closer, as in the finale. Throughout the entire record, lyrics essentially sound like a suicide note from Ian Curtis, but nobody ever noticed because they were so wrapped up in success and the absolute beauty of the music. If you're not aware of Joy Division, get aware. And if you want, the first two New Order records are really good, but after that, they blow. That's Rotten History, and this is Hell. This week's question from Hell is, what are you not doing right now? What are you not doing right now? All replies read on air during the third hour of this week's show. This week's winner gets one of the books we'll be featuring on this week's show, Jenny O'Dell's How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. Again, the question from Hell is, what are you not doing right now? Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Listen during the next hour to see if you have one. Hey, Alex, can you turn up the heat in here? It's like 15 degrees over here. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, we need social transformation via socialism now. We can overcome the attention economy that's consumed our reality through the revolutionary power of doing nothing. Fighting climate change with new technology means potentially contributing to climate change. During the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin remembers nostalgia. We'll also have listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media, what we've been up to on our Patreon podcast, which you can subscribe to at patreon.com slash thisishell. A completely different show every week from what we do here on air. We'll continue reading late 1980s entries by cult of the dead cow hacker psychedelic warlord, who you may know as... Beto O'Rourke, we want to remind you about our upcoming anniversary and listener appreciation party happening at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, on Saturday, July 27th, so put it in your calendar. Of course, the question from hell, we want to thank some listeners for sharing the show, others for supporting, and we'll tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. Oh, geez, I just dropped a page I was not supposed to. That's just great. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. Capitalism is dying, and it doesn't take a, and if it doesn't take us all down with it, we'll desperately need an alternative to replace it and make our world far more tolerable, fair, and just. Here to tell us what that future should be and how we could possibly, maybe, potentially get there, author and editor Bhaskar Sankara has a new book out entitled. The Socialist Manifesto, The Case for Radical Politics in an Era of Extreme Inequality. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Bhaskar. Hey, thanks for having me again. It's great, it. great to have you back on the show. You know, in my records, it says that the first time that you were on was 2013, but I think you were on before then, like right when Jacobin was published in 2011. But we had a 
hardware crash, and so I've lost some information. But uh, Bhaskar's been coming on our show since at least 2013. His most recent appearance on our show, I believe, was back in 2016 when we spoke with Bhaskar and another repeat guest on our show, Sarah Leonard, about a book they co-edited called The Future We Want, Radical Ideas for the New Century. You can find out more about Bhaskar. You can follow Bhaskar, I'm sorry, on Twitter at Sunray. Sun Ray, Bhaskar is the founder and editor of Jacobin. You can find Jacobin at jacobinmag.com. You start by writing, it's obvious that things are changing. When I was in high school and I told people I was a socialist, they looked at me as if I were crazy. When I tell people I'm a socialist today, they just nod and go about their day, not a hint of physical revulsion. What impact do you think a national Republican candidate or even a Democrat weaponizing socialist, using it in a derisive way, what impact do you think that that can have on an election? Because I'm wondering if socialist is becoming so accepted that a presidential candidate could call themselves one and get elected or even one that calls themselves a democratic socialist. So how successfully can socialists still be weaponized in a national election? Well, if you look at the polling, it's clear that Bernie Sanders could actually beat Donald Trump in a head-to-head election. So I think there's, uh, there's proof there. Um, the right has been using socialists so often for so long that people now associate it with any kind of mild program of social reform. You know, if Obama is a socialist, and it's hard to say that socialism is also breadlines and gulags. And I think, especially for this new generation came to age after the end of the Cold War, it doesn't have the same punch. So I think there's been a lot of progress, but with two of the more popular politicians in the U.S., or at least more prominent in the AOC and, and Bernie Sanders calling themselves socialists, it, it doesn't have the same punch that it used to. You live in Brooklyn. Is socialist simply more accepted in Brooklyn? Because it is definitely accepted here in Chicago, but when I'm not in Chicago and out in the suburbs or small cities... Socialist still gets you eye rolls, but at least it's not total revulsion like it used to be. So are, are you and I just in some sort of, I don't know, cocoon of people who are, oh, I'm okay with socialists, but maybe that might not be the case when we get out to the burbs? I don't think that's, a, that's true, actually. If you look at uh, where DSA is proportionally strongest, some of the largest chapters per capita are, are in Texas. So in a lot of these places, the mainstream Democratic Party is so weak and has not been a credible opposition to Republicans, that in fact, these left liberalism forces, these Our Revolution chapters, these Democratic Socialists of America chapters, actually have a lot of resonance. So I think it's pretty widespread that, that people know that, that you know, there are Democratic Socialists not committed to expanding the welfare state, that don't want to come in your sock drawer and collectivize their socks, and then instead, you know, really just, want certain necessities of life to be free of the market, free of dependence on your ability to pay. So I think it is pretty widespread. I mean, actually, in Brooklyn and New York, the reason maybe why socialism is more accepted here, let's say in Brooklyn, is simply because we have a lot of immigrants, a lot of people coming from countries, same thing in Chicago, where socialists are an important and mainstream part of the political discourse. But certainly all the Wall Street bankers and all the finance and insurance guys flooding into parts of northern Brooklyn now. Uh, they're more hostile to socialism than any group in the United States. 
So you write, my life was far more comfortable than the world my parents were born into or even that of my older siblings. It was clear to me why, certainly the tireless efforts of my family, but even more than that, the environment around me. And that environment wouldn't have been possible without the state. How much do Americans recognize, acknowledge the benefits that are given by the state? Are we in denial about how much the state helps us? And does that undermine our ability to accept ideas like socialism and social democracy? Well, I think one thing that does really undermine our ability to embrace social democratic and social ideas is the fact that the welfare state we have is largely either means-tested or it's provided through property taxes or by nature are exclusionary. In my parents' case, they were lucky enough to ethnic move to the U.S. to rent into a nice suburb that had good public schools. That was kind of our loophole around not having much money and not being able to, you know, afford a house in an area with, with high property taxes. But a lot of the, the U.S. people are, um, they're used to thinking, listen, I'm earning 35, 40 grand a year. I'm suffering. But if I only earned 15, 20 grand a year, then I would get food stamps and whatever else. They just pit working people against each other. And this was the design of those programs. Because the people who constructed those programs knew that universal programs are popular and that they could unite working people behind their, their cause. So today, for example, you have unions at the ILWU. You have these like good unionized jobs that pay 80 grand plus. But these workers, when they campaign for lower hours, five, 10 hours, you know, less of work per, per week, what they're saying is that, you know, give some of these jobs, uh, give us the same wages, we'll work a little bit less and give some, create some extra jobs for hardworking people who just aren't in the job market because they're, they're not able to. That's the politics of the labor movement, the politics of solidarity, of the alliance between employed and unemployed, between median income and lower income uh, working people. But the logic of the U.S. welfare state has been continually to try to undermine those bonds of solidarity. That's why I wanted Bhaskar back on the show. You write how you were a committed liberal in the best American sense. You're now a socialist. And I'm pretty sure that both these things are true. But did you change or did what being a liberal means change? Well, I think there's a base of really committed, smart people who call themselves liberals in the United States. And these are people who call themselves liberals because they have progressive social views and because they're committed to, broadly committed to redistribution. So they defend things like Social Security, they defend things like Medicare, they want to see Medicare expanded, and they know just how devastating the Republican right is and them have being in power is, especially the brown and black uh, people in the United States. There's reasons that we fear having Republicans in office. And that often leads to these people being straight Democratic voters, whether or not they identify as, as liberals. I think our message to these people can't be, you're stupid, you're wrong, liberalism is a con, it's a dead end, you should go further left. We have to say, this new crop of socialist politicians, these new crop of of socialist organizations and publications, we better represent the things you already support. The true defenders of Medicare, the people who will defend and expand social programs and social security, are... AOC, it's Bernie Sanders, it's all these politicians that are to the left of the mainstream professional uh, class Democrats. It's not Chuck Schumer, it's not Hillary Clinton that will help you, it's, it's us. Um, so I guess there, there needs to be a way to articulate 
a politics to the left for liberalism that isn't an anti-liberalism, because otherwise it'll just seem like we're attacking people for making what's essentially a rational choice between two bad options. You write how your local library had heaps of socialist literature, most of them donated by red diaper babies and Jewish cultural associations. By chance, you picked up Leon Trotsky's My Life the summer after seventh grade. Didn't particularly like it, still don't, but was sufficiently. But you were sufficiently intrigued to the, read the Isaac Deutscher biographies of Trotsky, the works of democratic socialist thinkers, including Michael Harrington and Ralph Miliband, and eventually the mysterious Karl Marx himself. How much reading do I have to do to be a socialist? <laughs> to be a socialist, do I have to re-educate myself? Do I need to know the difference between Marxism and Trotskyism and Marxist-Leninism and Luxembourgism? Do I need to know the differences between all these different forms of communism and all their definitions to be a socialist? I think to be a socialist, you don't need to do that reading. To be a socialist, you just need to have a sense of the moral worth of each individual and have a sense that there's so much potential out there in this world that's untapped. There's so many people that are going to spend their entire lives working 50, 60 hours a week in sweatshops, working in these really demeaning conditions that are, in fact, our future Einsteins and Da Vinci's. Or at the very least, there are people that can contribute to human society far more than they are. And I think this is, this is what capitalism does. This is what any class society does. It, it sorts and filters us not by virtue of our ability, but simply by accidents of birth. You know, we take for granted the fact that a kid born in Fairfield County, you know, Connecticut, is going to have a radically different life outcome than someone born in Waterbury or someone born in Hartford. You know, this, this is what it means to be a socialist, to fight for these egalitarian um, outcomes and to fight for these, these programs. Now, I do think it's important for us to be students of history, for us not to be ignorant of the way in which social movements have both achieved great successes, but also tragic failures of the past century. And that's why a lot of this book that I wrote, the middle third of the book almost, is about this illustrative history, about both the triumphs of social democracy, about what went wrong in Russia, about all these different attempts to create a better, a better world. So even though we don't need that history to be a socialist and be committed to the moral and ethical underpinnings of what it means to be a socialist, I think it's really important to know and understand history in order to put these politics back into practice once again, and hopefully this time really win a better, a better world, better society. You write that you saw the importance of day-to-day reforms and was you were yourself the beneficiary of those victories. Marxism, though, was in my head. The 9-11 attacks and the subsequent war on terror only reinforced those tendencies as I and many people of my generation were introduced to mass protests through the anti-war movement. But those protests didn't stop the war. So how did the protests against the then impending Iraq war inform your politics? Why didn't it simply leave you cynical, even apathetic? Well, what I saw was the power of mass protest. The fact that people could get out there and rally together, people who didn't know each other, people who felt maybe that they were isolated, lone voices of, of, of anti-war sentiments in their communities, could get together and show their, their power in the millions. And you're right, it didn't stop the war. And many of us who were part of the anti-war movement saw it coming, right? We saw the hundreds of thousands of dead Iraqis we saw the thousands of dead and wounded American servicemen. We saw this 
this coming. And we also saw that it was built on, on lies. So, you know, right now, a lot of these Democratic Party politicians or Joe Biden's of the world will go back and say, well, no one could have known. Or, in fact, close to the majority of Americans knew, despite the relentless propaganda attack. But even though you could say the anti-war movement didn't achieve its, its main goal, you could say the same thing about Occupy or about Black Lives Matter. What these movements did was show the power of collective action and protest and show people that they're not alone. And in fact, there was a sentiment out there that was to the left of CNN and MSNBC, you know, and at a time when the country was going down this really dangerous, jingoistic path, I think it really showed that, that people who thought differently and people who knew that it wasn't the, wrong, the right route weren't alone. Do you see a progress, a process, an evolution in protest in actions that are being taken by people who are not supporting U.S. policies. Do you see, uh, can you see like a clear path from the Iraq war protests to Occupy, to Black Lives Matter, to today maybe Extinction Rebellion? Do you see some sort of process or progress that's taking place in evolution that's taking place in protest in actions? So to be honest, I just see the clearer connection between Occupy Black Lives Matter and the Sanders campaign, this recent wave, I guess you could say commenced, not actually with Occupy, it commenced with the Wisconsin uprising in 2011. I can see that connection of that anti-austerity, egalitarian um, movements and currents. And a lot of these people, of course, later went on to be involved in the first Sanders run, are now supporting him now. Hopefully it takes on uh, you know, real grassroots character and isn't just treated like a top-down presidential campaign uh, this time around. But I can see that connection. I think the movement against the Iraq War just confirmed that U.S. imperial policies will get continually questioned by a mass of Americans. Now, a lot of this is credit after the sacrifices of the generation that fought against the Vietnam War. From 1965 onward, among working-class Americans, and obviously on the census, there's no checkbox for, you know, proletarian, petty bourgeois, bourgeois. But we use um, education as a proxy for class. And Americans with just high school diplomas or less were in the majority anti-war. And Americans with college degrees kind of vacillated, started out pro-war by the end, early 70s or anti-war. Uh, Americans with graduate degrees stayed largely pro-war in Vietnam. But what these movements were able to do was to create mass sentiment against U.S. foreign policy that wasn't there during the Korean War, for example. And I think a lot of that has stuck. And there was maybe an attempt to refurbish American power in the 1990s under Bill Clinton with these so-called humanitarian interventions and the former Yugoslavian Republic in Somalia, um, these periodic bombings of Iraq. But Iraq, uh, the Iraq War in the you know, in 2003, was a sign that, well, in fact, U.S. foreign policy can't quite go on without, without mass opposition. And it was a, I think, reinforcement of the sentiments that were built through organizing and through struggle in the, in the fight against the Vietnam War. You said something in that response I definitely want to follow up on. Would there, okay, a lot of people say that Occupy was a failure. And a lot of people say it was a failure because it was located in one 
place, that that strategy of having it located in one place on Wall Street, when that place was taken away, that the strat that showed the strategy of Occupy was a failure and the whole project was a failure. Does the Bernie Sanders campaign prove that Occupy was a success? Could there be a Bernie Sanders campaign without Occupy Wall Street? Well, I can't really answer that that last part. It's so hard to, to disconnect different different factors. I would say that all these these mostly kids that were involved in the Occupy movement, especially at the beginning, they were coming out of a political vacuum. They hadn't had experience being in mass protests. They hadn't have had experience constructing durable organizations. So it's very hard to just say, you know, you failed when in fact they were able to change the national discussion about inequality. They were broadly popular. They took a lot of the power away from the Tea Party movement, and they were were the movement for the Tea Party that actually had mass support among ordinary Americans who had never stepped foot in an encampment. So I think that was really important. But in other words, if there wasn't Occupy, there still would have been the underlying anger that fueled the Occupy movement. And it was this underlying anger that I think Sanders fed into. So I think there were manifestations that definitely had the same source, but I'm not sure whether one was dependent on the on the other. But for millions of Americans that were, I think, very used to personalizing their problems to thinking that any little calamity that faced them, medical debt, joblessness, and so on, was somehow a personal failing, what both Occupy and the Sanders campaign was able to do was to tell people it's not your fault. And in fact, you're doing more than enough. You're filling up your share of the bargain. What's happening is there's millionaires and billionaires, or one percenters, that are benefiting from the precarious situation you find yourself in. And I think that sense that our problems are social and the solution to those problems are collective was really new um, in the last 10 years. And it, it's quite a common sentiment Home political movements have been built for over a century on that basis, for centuries on that basis. But the United States of the 80s and 90s was really out there. We are speaking with Bhaskar Sankara. He is the founder and editor of Jacobin. He's also the author of a brand new book that we're discussing, The Socialist Manifesto, The Case for Radical Politics in an Era of Extreme Inequality. You can find out more about Jacobin at jacobinmag.com. And you can follow Bhaskar on Twitter at Sunray. Sun Ray, you write Marxism provided a framework for understanding why reforms, one within capitalism, were so hard to sustain and why there was so much suffering in societies filled with abundance. How does Marxism to you explain that there can be so much suffering and yet so much abundance in capitalism? Well, capitalism is a social system and that it brings together scattered resources from all around the world. It brings around labor from all around the world, and it brings us together to labor collectively in these often giant enterprises of hundreds of hundreds, if not thousands of people. So whereas before, we might have been individual artisans, or we might have been individual peasants on our little plots of land, now we were laboring in this great productive enterprises. And we were producing for the market under the whip of this competition, and that led to more and more efficient forms of production, which created a tremendous amount of wealth and abundance. Wealth and abundance, of course, could really transform how we live as human beings. 
Yet at the same time that capitalism is a social creation, it's also fundamentally asocial in how it's structured. So the capitalist workplace is a tyranny. It's not that we labor collectively and democratically, but we labor collectively, but a small group of people get to decide what happens with the surplus of our, of our labor, what happens with the fruits of our, our efforts. It also means that production of all things is for just the market and not for what is necessarily useful. So if you go around many American cities, I was just in Seattle and Portland, two cities that have this problem you know, more than most. There's tremendous homelessness, for example. But there's, and there's tons of, you know, kind of fake solutions to this homelessness. So in Seattle, for example, there's these innovation clinics where these people want to create apps that will deal with homelessness and, and talk about, you know, increasing people's human capital so they won't be homeless and all this other, you know, jargon. When, in fact, the common sense solution of, oh, these people are homeless, why don't we build some homes? Why don't we have social, public social housing? Why don't we have, why do we treat housing like something that should be bought and sold in the market? And thus, people can't afford to pay, don't have access to it. This logic is counter to the logic of capitalism. But at the same time, capitalism is the thing that created these wealthy, abundant societies. So what we need, I think, is some form of socializing what's asocial in capitalism to putting it under more collective ownership and control, and to making sure that at the very least, the core necessities of life, your housing, childcare, education, healthcare, your access to basic nutrition, that these things are guaranteed as social rights and not treated as commodities to be bought and sold in the market. You describe your politics today as, quote, a radicalism that is aware of the difficulty of revolutionary change, and at the same time of how profound... The gains of reform can be. Do reforms do more than reinforce an un- inherently unfair system? Does reforming capitalism strengthen something that should be abandoned? Yes, I, I think it absolutely uh, uh, helps working people not only today, but what reforming capitalism does is it opens up the horizons for us to ask more and more radical things in the future. So Leninists, for example had a criticism of social democracy. And they said, well, listen, some of these reforms of constructing this welfare state will be good in the short term. We're not denying that. But in the long run, what it'll do is make people wedded to their bosses. It'll make them wedded to their nation state. It'll make them content and kind of quiescent. Golden change for a slave. In fact, it did the opposite in practice. Workers in Sweden throughout the 40s and 50s and, and early 60s, were given reform after reform. They were living by the late 60s in probably the most generous society ever constructed, the most egalitarian society ever constructed within capitalism. They had huge spheres of life that were decommodified, taken out of the market. They had high wages. They had high levels of unionization. They had job security. They had all these wonderful things. And guess what they did? In 1967 and 1968, they went on strike, not just for better wages and conditions. They went on strike for industrial democracy. In other words, they were questioning the right of management to manage. They were questioning why workers were in the subordinate positions and these big enterprises, they contributed all the, the labor, both mental and physical, to. By the 1970s, Swedish Social Democrats were calling for 
a socialization of production. So in other words, taking these large Swedish firms and over time having workers buy up shares in them to the point that within 20 years or so, every large enterprise in Sweden would have been collectively owned by, by workers. So in other words, social democracy allowed people to feel the confidence and it built the class power that allowed people to put more radical things on the agenda. If we today in the United States cannot get a movement together, cannot build a chronic working class power to get something like Medicare for all, how in the world are we going to get something like the worker ownership of the means of production to the old Marxist you know, demand? To me, if you can't get one, you can't get the other. And moreover, there are certain reforms, like, for example, getting full employment, that increases the capacity of people to fight for more. So if you're unemployed and you're in a condition of 20 25% unemployment, you're going to be a lot less likely to strike or to seek collective action as a solution to your problem than if you're um, in an environment of, of near full employment. So if your boss wants you to, to accept lower wages or worse bargain, but you're in a tight labor market, They'll say, F off, I'm going to fight back. I'm going to go on strike. But collective action is often not viable in the United States because it's so difficult to fight back, because our unions are so weak, because often we're in communities with high unemployment, with very little social rights, and so on. So I think, I think reforms are, are steps towards more, more radical transformations, and they're not counterposed uh, roads. You write that in Sweden, <clears throat> unlike in New Jersey, more spheres of life are decommodified, meaning they're taken out of the market and enjoyed as social rights. Even though you are unemployed, uh, indeed, you would not have quit your job otherwise, you can rely on benefits, engage in civic life, and take some time to consider what to do next. But decommodification means fewer jobs, as the Medicare for All skeptics point out regularly. And Max Page's word program doesn't even recognize the word decommodify. With decommodification, do we get free services and reliable benefits, but fewer jobs, and by extension, a lowered standard of living for all those who used to work in what will be a decommodified industry, as those who are saying will happen with Medicare for All? Uh, no, I, I think it's quite the opposite. In fact, we'll need an large and public sector to have these kind of jobs. If we were taking care of, let's say, our children in the United States better, we would have more people who are well-paid professionals doing uh, daycare work. I, I don't know about Chicago, but at least in New York, like there's a network of loosely regulated child care um, you know, uh, places in our daycare that are um, just filled with people doing low-wage, stressful work in poor conditions. Now, imagine if this was under the purview of the state and there were certain deeper regulations and they were state employees with certain benefits and rights. Imagine if we treated elder care the same way. Now, when it comes to Medicare for All, what people are sometimes objecting to is the fact that it'll be a lot of jobs lost in the insurance industries. I think we need a just transition for these people. I think they should be trained to do socially useful work. But this is the whole point of Medicare for All. We don't need billing departments if you're sick you should get to see a doctor. You shouldn't have to talk with 50 middlemen or 50 bureaucrats getting between you and, and the service you need from your from medical professionals. So those jobs are, I think, socially useless. I think we need 
to make sure that people are currently doing them, and they're not bad people, they're just doing these jobs just to survive and take care of their families, are, are taken care of. But there'll be a lot of savings uh, just by transitioning to some sort of healthcare system where the focus is on providing care and not on figuring out how to build people for more money. I know I'm going to get emails from listeners who will say that Sweden has been on a center-right political footing and pursuing neoliberalism and austerity dating back to 2008, as moderator of the Marxism mailing list, Louis Projekt, argues. So how much is Sweden or even Scandinavia a distraction from discussing the Swedish social democratic process? Well, I think that Obviously, there has been a big retreat in social democracy across Europe since the 1970s. Um, to use an analogy, Swedish social democracy got us into the red zone in, in the 1970s. We were close to scoring a touchdown, let's say, in this analogy, touchdown socialism. And instead, we've been kicked out, you know, just beyond field goal range. We're still, we're still you know... I got to work on this analogy, but we're still, we're still past, <laughs> you know, center field, you know, we're still, we're still far further along the, the route than we were, uh, than we were before. And, you know, so I think one, we shouldn't discredit to the extent to which lives in Nordic countries are still much more fair and equal than what we have in the uh, United States. But we shouldn't deny that social democracy has been largely rolled back. And what's at the root of this rollback is this contradiction in social democracy where you're giving workers more power and more rights. But at the end of the day, the power to withhold investment is in the hands of private capitalists. Private capitalists can say, listen, this arrangement that was working so well for us in the 1940s and 50s is no longer working so well for us now. You've been making too militant wage demands. These wage demands are cutting into our profits. You've been demanding these rights that interfere with our ability to manage. There's more international competition. There's things, contingent factors of the OPEC crisis in the 70s. And these capitalists could say, you know, we are not going to, to keep in this agreement. We're going to either withhold investment or we're going to flee to another country. And even well-intentioned social democrats would then say, well, the only way we could sustain our generous welfare state is if we're taxing the proceeds that are produced by these privately controlled firms. So this is the reason why social democracy moves to the right. It's not because there was some deep betrayal by social democratic leaders. It's because of this structural contradiction. Now, what I think a democratic socialist, as opposed to just a regular social democratic policy, says, that's why from the high point of social democracy, we need to think about socializing production, taking control of investment away from capital, and making sure that this blackmail doesn't exist. So either we can move further to the left and go beyond social democracy, or we can move to the to the right and, and retreat. And the choice that ended up being pursued was the rightward movement. But as I mentioned before, and as I explained in the book, there was this attempt within Swedish social democracy in the 1970s to choose the left alternative, to try to create these wage earner funds for socialized production, try to extend democracy, uh, industrial democracy, do all these things that I think would have resolved the crisis in such a way that, that took away this, this power of blackmail from, from capital. Is 
The degree to which socialism embraces democracy, the most misunderstood thing about socialism, because you write, to be a socialist today is to believe that more, not less democracy will help solve social ills, and to believe that ordinary people can shape the systems that shape their lives. Because I was, when I was reading that, all I could think of was how, not just lately, but there's been an increase in this, I've been seeing more and more conservative commentators and pundits on shows saying that the United States isn't a democracy, it's a republic, which is kind of like saying, I don't drive a Ford, I drive a Lincoln, when Lincoln is owned by Ford. It's, the, it's, it's a really dumb thing that uh, you can even see in the Federalist Papers. James Madison defines republic as a government which derives all its powers directly or indirectly from the great body of the people. That is a democracy. So is the degree to which socialism embraces democracy the most misunderstood thing about socialism? And is this ploy of saying that we're a republic, not a democracy, an attempt by conservatives to get people to be against democracy, the kind of expanded democracy that socialism may bring? Yeah, well, I think one thing is the right in the sense that Madison did have a more narrow conception of democracy than we do, in that who he thought the people were were this narrow band of property-owning um, you know, white men, whereas obviously our vision of, of what a democratic republic is is one in which the franchise and those political rights are extended to all people. But beyond that, we want to not just defend political democracy. The socials are at the forefront of fights for voting rights and so on. We want to see democracy extended into social and economic realms as well. So that's at the core of the socials project. It's saying if democracy is a good thing in the voting booth, why isn't a good thing in a workplace as well? Why do we accept that a workplace is a run like petty fiefdoms Whereas we would never tolerate that in the political sphere. But I think the most misunderstood thing about socialism is actually the fact that we are about freedom. So I think often the Hayekian discourse has been, okay, well, socialism is about trading in your freedom for equality. And that makes it seem like not so great of a bargain, maybe. But in fact, I think the main question the socialist project is, freedom for whom? If I'm a factory owner, or I'm the owner of a restaurant, and I'm working my workers for 11 hours a week, and you're, sorry, 11 hours a day, so, you know, 55 hours a week, and you are uh, an employee working for me, you agreed to enter into this contract, you know, you've agreed to take this, take this job, but then a government comes around, a Bernie Sanders government, a left-wing Congress comes around and says, you have to pay those workers. The same thing you're paying them to work 55 hours, but the work that is not 35 hours. Now, that extra four or five hours a day that I'm getting, that four or five hours is freedom for me. It's freedom to watch the NBA, to write poetry, to look after my kids, to do you know anything I want. Yet at the same time, that four or five hours a day is bad for the owner. It's telling the owner that, you took this huge investment, you own this piece of property, you're struggling to survive in the competitive marketplace, and now you're constrained about what you can do with your property and how you can treat the people that are engaging in an employment contract with you. So it's a question of whose freedom do we value more? Do we value the freedom for the majority to fully develop as human beings? Do we value the freedom for the minority to own private property? So it's a trade-off. But to me, the central question is a question of freedom. And when it comes to democracy, there has been 
different parts of the socialist tradition that hasn't valued democratic rights, particularly in the political sphere. But those traditions have always been an extreme minority in the United States. They're virtually wiped out across, across the world. The surviving socialist traditions are the ones that are rooted in a really deep anti-Stalinist tradition. They were the ones politically committed to fighting for democracy, not only within the West, but also within the Eastern Bloc. But obviously, the right isn't concerned with trying to parse out the difference between democratic socialists and Stalinists. They want to paint us with the same brush. That's their prerogative. We need to find a way to correct the record and to respond to them without being so uh, you know, defensive and, and operating on their terrain. Can we make it so capitalism rewards good behavior, like compassion for workers by giving them more benefits and a living wage? Can't we make it so the boss profits from his love for, let's say, in your example, bird watching, but we can't, but we can, can't we create compassionate capitalism? No, we can't. Because capitalists themselves are not in full control of our society. They're competing with one another in a competitive marketplace. So about me as a capitalist, if I decide to uh, double the wages of my employees, I'll be undercut by capitalists that aren't so merciful. Capitalism encourages people to become sociopaths, to think about nothing but their bottom line, to treat people like tools in pursuit of this bottom line. What you can do is regulate capitalism and create certain restrictions and enforce those restrictions on what capitalists can do. And you can push over the network of global regulations to prevent this kind of race to the bottom. But you can't foster an ethical capitalism that's rooted in changing the mental outlook of capitalists. And it's not that these people are perverse in the moment they're born. They're put into an environment where certain traits and certain things are necessary to succeed. And we can see the difference between uh, maybe someone is a complete sociopath like Steve Jobs and didn't donate a penny to charity, and someone like Buffett, who you could say, all right, at least he feels kind of bad. He's talking about raising the marginal tax rate and he's donating to charity. But at the end of the day, their wealth is rooted primarily in the labor of other people and the fact that they are convening all this labor together, but then authoritarianly deciding what to do with the social surplus that's created, taking large chunks and putting it in their pockets. You write that under socialism, the deluge of bad poetry, strange philosophical blog posts, and, and terrible abstract art will be a sure sign of progress. Why do you see that as progress? Well, I think that people right now don't get the chance to cultivate their, their talents. There's a reason why there's jokes now about, oh, you know, you're an artist, you know, you must be a trust fund kid or something. Like, how do you survive? You know, um, and... And obviously, it's not to these people's fault, but a lot of the people who, who get the chance to pursue these creative fields are people who have this underlying financial security. And I think under socialism, people will get the chance to experiment more, to think culturally and, and whatnot. Uh, G.A. Cohen, the great uh, Marxist philosopher who sadly passed away a few years ago, he used to compare his life as a tenured professor, and I believe he was at Oxford, one of these really nice schools in the UK. And he would work for four or five hours a day. He would read, he would walk around, he would engage in lively discussions. He was known in his community. He would say, you know, this is a pretty good approximation to what he would want socialism uh, to be like. So maybe we can't all be on sabbatical 24-7, 
but uh, there's a lot of a lot of nice things that come from just being outside of the production process. So what socialists fight for, it's not just voice on the job, like more union rights and things like that. We also fight for exit, the ability to leave production, even if just for an extra two, three hours a day and enjoy, enjoy life. And that might mean pursuing creative things. It might mean sitting around and watching sports and hanging with, out with your friends, you know, but that's, that to me is, is, is what freedom really is about. And we're going to be talking about that in a few minutes with Jenny O'Dell, who is the author of the new uh, new book about the revolutionary act of doing nothing. You write that crucially, capitalists themselves are hostage to the market. Your boss is a nice man, and he wants to pay his workers double what they earn now, but he knows rivals will outcompete him if his labor costs are twice as high. If we are hostages, we are all hostages to the market. What's the price that must be paid for our freedom from capitalism? What is the ransom that we are being asked to pay? What I would say is I envision a form of socialism that's no less productive than what we have today, that might have different priorities when it comes to more. We make sure that it's sustainable, that you know, we're not using dirty fossil fuels to, to fuel our industries and so on. But what I'm asking for is let's take over our companies Let's run them democratically. To the extent we still need hierarchy, let's elect our managers. Let's hold them to some sort of democratic accountability. To the extent there'll still be market competition and let's say the sphere for consumer goods, let's make sure that the penalties for losing out in competition isn't destitution, but is kind of bouncing on this nice welfare state and being able to get retrained or go to some other other sector. So I, I really don't think there's going to be to be trade-offs. But to the extent there will have to be some trade-offs to say, we, in the next century, can't figure out how to make air travel less, um, less dirty. We can't figure out how to both hit our climate targets and, and allow kind of the level of air travel we have now. Well, how do we ration this? Should it just be that only rich people are allowed to, to travel? What about uh, if you have a sick relative on the other side of the planet? You can't see them in their last dying days? Oh, you would have to figure out a way in which people maybe get carbon vouchers and you know, are able to, to ration scarce resources in such a way that makes sense democratically. But I really think that we're living in an era of false scarcity where people are trained to think there's not enough to go around. That, in fact, the reason why we have hungry people in much of the global south or even here in the United States where we have homelessness or whatnot is because there's not enough resources. Whereas I think the reason why we don't have enough is because a small minority of people are hoarding wealth and power. And if we redistribute that wealth and power, I think we could all flourish. And, you know, so I, I hate to put it this way, but I think that, that, that there's no trade-off for the for 90, 95% of the population. There's going to be 5% of the population. There's going to be 10% of the population that are going to lose their, their wealth and power. But, of course, we believe in their inherent moral worth as human beings, and we look forward to them participating in a just society. And maybe that means no longer being a health insurance CEO, but at the very least, you know, they could still be a manager to work their own enterprise, or they could still contribute to the public sector. They could still be inventors and creators and do all this wonderful thing. We have been speaking with Bhaskar Sankara. He is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. You can find Jacobin at jacobinmag.com. 
We've been talking to Bhaskar today about his new book, The Socialist Manifesto, The Case for Radical Politics in an Era of Extreme Inequality. You can follow Bhaskar on Twitter at Sunray. Sunray, as we do with all of our guests, Bhaskar, you may remember our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. Bhaskar, does socialism mean the end of money? And if not, why not? It doesn't mean the end of money. Because our problem isn't with money. Our problem isn't even with profits. My, our problem is with the exploitation behind which profit is derived. So money might be a very useful marker of um, you know, determining the prices of consumer goods. It might be useful in all sorts of different ways. Uh, but what's really bad is exploitation. And by exploitation, I often mean the wage-labor relationship, the hierarchies and inequities in the workplace. So uh, keep, your, keep your money. Just make sure it's not derived from the sweat of another, another human being, and you know, we'll be set. Bhaskar, always great hearing your voice. You know I'm going to be bugging you in the future to have you back on the show. This is a fantastic book, and if you come out with a later edition that has uh, more information, some addenda to it, please come back on the show. This really is a great book, and I think that all of our listeners should be reading it. The Socialist Manifesto by Bhaskar Sankara. Thanks so much for being back on our show, Bhaskar. Very nice of you to say. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Take care. Your eyewitness to grief. This is hell. We need to stop paying attention to the attention economy, the economy that insists on our utter devotion and attention as we stare into that black mirror of smartphone virtual reality that exists for no reason but to commodify us and turn us into goods to be bought and sold. We must stop being constantly busy in order to feel productive. We have to start doing nothing as a revolutionary act to those who want to own and control all our time. We'll find out how transformative doing nothing can be for ourselves as well as our friends, family, community, and all of society when we speak in a few with Jenny O'Dell, author of How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. Alex, what have you been up to on social media this week? Uh, on Twitter. I, look, I know, is it bad form to just read a funny joke that you did on Twitter? Uh, yes, but uh, here goes. Uh, on Twitter last week I wrote, I'm two words into this Doug Henwood piece on the DSA and it's already too optimistic for me. And then I attached a screen grab of a pic of the first paragraph of his piece. And the first two words were future historians. Uh, so I got a good laugh out of that. And then on Facebook, uh, I posted a great piece by Nathan J. Robinson of Current Affairs. Uh, we actually need to get him back on the show a lot. I like his writing a ton. Um, and he had a piece called The Austerity of Luxury, which I think is inspired by him probably just walking around London's Heathrow 5 terminal and sort of meditating on uh, the austerity of luxury. It's a really good piece. Uh, and then it's something that people really, really liked. I'm trying to figure out a way to share this because I've written about this a couple different or I've shared articles about this a couple different times but there's a think progress article called Exxon predicted in 1982 exactly how high global carbon emissions would be today and I'd really love to do something about the oil industry knowing everything about climate change way 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 before it happens um, and that's like a pretty fascinating thing to me and then on Instagram um, I shared a picture of me making a joke on Twitter. Do you want to hear the joke on Twitter? It was, I'm two words into this Doug Henwood piece on the DSA, and it's already op too optimistic for me. And I attached a grab of the pic, and the first two words of that article were, future historians. <laughs> hey, so uh, you didn't mention the conversation that you had on Twitter, did you? About Emily Manna? 
Oh, no, no, no. Do you okay. want to do that? Yeah, no, no, I'll do that later. I just wanted to make sure I didn't miss anything while I was attending to technical difficulties. It's time for listener feedback. Let's start with that listener who had an issue with Emily Manna on last week's show. When she was talking about automating war, Emily said there are no pro-war candidates. But on Twitter, at Alphabug24 told us, this was a good interview, although I have to note the interesting omission of Tulsi Gabbard and Mike Gravel in the answer to the question from Hell when you asked if there are any explicitly anti-war candidates running and one of the speakers answered none. So Alex contacted Emily and she replied, for what it's worth, I was reluctant to mention candidates by names for work reasons. Regardless, I wouldn't call Tulsi Gabbard an anti-war candidate. I would call her an anti-regime change candidate. She is explicitly pro-war on terror, which is exactly the kind of endless war Ellie Harputlian and I were discussing on This Is Hell. Which leads to another email on the same interview, this one from Miska. Hi, Chuck and Alex. I was listening to this very informative and actually scary chat with Allegra and Emily. In the end, you asked the question you hate to ask, whether there are any presidential candidates on the horizon who truly include ending war on their agenda. Allegra and Emily responded negatively. I disagree, even if chances are low. I think that that is optimistic. Uh, When it comes to his running still, former... Alaska Senator Mike Gravel has a single but crucial point to make in his campaign. Ending wars. All the best from Brussels. We've got EU elections in a week. Go Varoufakis and the European Spring, Miska. It's really weird about Mike Gravel. I found articles where he's where it says that he has announced that he's running for president. But in every list of all the people who are running for president... He is never included, never included, and I don't know why. They've already put in Bill de Blasio on all these lists, but for whatever reason, Mike Gravel is never on the list. Gravel Schmavel, who cares? Giannis is running for European Parliament, and there could be a European Spring? Because all our media is reporting is that the far right is about to take over the European Parliament, and fascism will once again reign in Europe. So we got to look into this and we got to get Giannis back on the show because if he's running for European Parliament, I want to know about it. If there's a possibility for a European spring, I want to know about it. Oh, and Mike Gravel's 88. More listeners want to talk about our bleak future. We got this email from Dirk Hey Chuck. Greetings from Iowa City. And thanks for the show. I would appreciate hearing you in conversation with cruel optimism author Lauren Berlant on her take on infrastructure and precarity. Cheers. Dirk. Dirk then gives us a link to Lawrence's work at deterritorialinvestigations.wordpress.com. Deterritorialinvestigations.wordpress.com. Listeners, if you ever hear a guest suggestion and you would like to second it, please do so because we're trying to fill out our all-listener suggested lineup for Listener Appreciation Month in July. Seamus writes to us with a gift. Hey, Chuck, hope all is well. I was wondering if you'd be interested in a free year-long subscription of the London Review of Books. I'm a recurring subscriber, and they allow you to gift a subscription once a year. Let me know if that sounds good to you. If so, I will send it along to Devon Avenue or wherever you'd like. Cheers, Seamus. P.S. Just listened to your interview with Andrew Coburn about Joe Biden. Great stuff. Thanks, Seamus. And hell yes, we want a free subscription to anything. If any listener wants to subscribe us to anything, 
but especially their local paper. Our address is This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon Avenue, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60645. That's listener feedback for right now. We'll probably be getting back into it a little bit later on. This week's question from Hal is, what are you not doing right now? What are you not doing right now? All replies read on air following our next guest. And the winner will be getting our next guest's book, Jenny O'Dell's How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. Again, the question from Hal is, what are you not doing right now? Leave your response at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. What are you not doing right now? Coming up on this week's This Is Hell We can overcome the attention economy that's consumed our reality through the revolutionary power of doing nothing. Fighting climate change with new technology might mean contributing to climate change. During the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin remembers nostalgia. We'll also have what we've been up to on Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. We'll continue reading the late 1980s entries by Cult of the Dead Cow hacker, Psychedelic Warlord, who you may know as Beto O'Rourke. We will keep reminding you about our upcoming anniversary and listener appreciation party happening at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon on Saturday, July 27th. Let's put that in your calendar. Of course, like I said, the question from hell. We want to thank some listeners for sharing This Is Hell online and others for supporting the show by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. And we'll tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's This Is Hell is Alex, Jerry, and Leo O'Connell, who I just saw sitting over there. I think he's been there for a couple of hours, but I just noticed. Live from the nightmare of want, this is hell. We are constantly busy, always checking our smart smartphone, always logged into whatever social platform we prefer. We are forever occupied in a virtual reality that is nothing more than a marketplace that buys and sells us, turning us into... Nothing but goods for profits. And there's nothing we can do about it. Actually, we can do nothing about it and possibly rebel against the attention economy that insists we always watch. Here to help us learn the revolutionary power of doing absolutely nothing, multidisciplinary artist and writer Jenny O'Dell is author of How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. Welcome to This is Hell, Jenny. Thanks for having me. In one of Jenny's favorite projects, she, she she created the Bureau of Suspended Objects, a searchable online archive of 200 objects salvaged from the San Francisco dump, each with photographs and painstaking research into its material corporate and manufacturing histories, which sounds fascinating. Jenny has exhibited her work all over the world. And you can find out more about Jenny by going to JennyOdell.com. So let's just start with a basic thing that people should know right now, and I think people may have already figured it out. But what is the attention economy? Um, So the attention economy, I think on a literal level, is just the buying and selling of your attention. So, um, you know, there are obvious design elements to the platforms that we use that are intended to keep you on them for as long as possible, not to mention engaging with as much content as possible. Um, And so that's really just, you know, design and kind of marketing practice. But I, I, in the book, I also kind of tie it to a larger idea of the attention economy, Um, you know, just kind of more general ideas that if you don't express yourself constantly online, you no longer exist. 
um, ideas of the personal brand um, or sort of staying relevant. Um, and so there's kind of like, I think, larger psychological or behavioral things that come out of those specific design elements. So why is it so successful, especially in light of knowing how it invades our privacy and having our right to privacy enshrined within the Constitution? What explains to you why that's, why social media is so successful if we're supposed to be putting so much value in our privacy? Um, I mean, I think some of it, like, you know, to go back to those two levels, and some of it is probably just, you know, actual addictiveness. And, you know, there's been a lot of other writing on that. But, um, again, these things are designed to exploit certain, um, you know, uh, aspects of how we do or think about anything and, and they're very well designed to, to do that. So um, some of it is probably not intentional. Um, and, you know, there's also lots of books that have come out recently about, you know, how to break up with your phone or um, digital minimalism, like these kinds of, you know, these books wouldn't be written if it were easy for us to kind of walk away from these things. Um, but then I think, again, on that kind of broader level, um, there's a kind of privileging of the of the obvious and the visible um, and this kind of idea that um, by engaging with these things and representing your life on them, that you're producing something. So you, you know, you might not think of that as productive, but you are kind of constantly like making utterances or, or posting things or um, just kind of like shouting into this void. Um, and uh, I think once that kind of becomes entrenched or once we kind of start to take that for granted, um, simply kind of like sitting by and not saying anything or not not rendering oneself visible in those spaces like starts to feel very unnatural. You write, nothing is harder to do than nothing. In a world where our value is determined by our productivity, many of us find our every last minute captured, optimized, or appropriated as a financial resource by the te- technologies we use daily. Is it possible to do nothing and survive? Doesn't capitalism insist we do something for our very survival at all times? Yeah, I think so. Um, and so there's, you know, I, I, I've been saying that my book kind of exists in a in a meantime where uh, we all are subject to economic realities, um, obviously with something like the gig economy um, or, you know, just even someone who has more than one job. Um, the, the fact that time is money, which is something, you know, philosophy I'm kind of trying to to work against, like, is just a reality. Like, time is money for, for a lot of people. So um, it's kind of like, you know, I, I envision this book as like the, the weeds that are growing in the, in the cracks in the sidewalk. You know, it's like any kind of small space of resistance you can find, like, find that and kind of try to pry it open. But um, certainly not like envisioning, but, you know, a bunch of people being able to do a bunch of nothing all the time. <laughs> You write that we submit our free time to numerical evaluation, interact with algorithmic versions of each other, and build and maintain personal brands. For some, there may be a kind of engineer's satisfaction in the streamlining and networking of our entire lived experience, and yet a certain nervous feeling of being overstimulated and unable to sustain a train of thought lingers. Why does this concentration on our brand undermine our ability to concentrate? Um, I just think that it, you know, the, the, the philosophy of the personal brand exists in that kind of realm of the, the very short loop of attention. So, um, you know, if you spend, if you spend a certain amount of time on Twitter, like you start to feel crazy. I don't think I'm alone in thinking that. Um, 
And uh, not to say that it's it's not useful for some things, but um, it's this kind of um, very myopic and sort of claustrophobic view, not only of, I think, what's happening, but of the self. So, um, you know, one of the things that I kind of, am, I express worry about in the book is, um, you know, this, I sort of believe that they're in an ecological model of the self where, you know, it's actually somewhat hard to draw a hard line around the boundary of the self and, um, and to accept that makes you open to being surprised, to learning that you're wrong, to just, you know, simply learning new things, um, you know, becoming a different person. Um, and that that's sort of the opposite of the, of the personal brand and the kind of optimized streamlined self, which is, you know, comes out of this idea that you should, you know, be yourself, capital Y, right? Um, that you should have a an identifiable and unchanging pattern of preferences, um, and that ultimately that just makes it easier to advertise to you. So, you know, there is, I think, a reason for this kind of um, encouraging of something like a personal brand and this and this pattern of of habits and preferences. So, do we live in a state where we are always reacting, replying, and responding, but never concentrating, contemplating, or considering? our actions deeply, like kind of like a, I was thinking like a news outlet that has thought that prioritizes uh, being the first to report on a story over being the most accurate to report on a story. Is that the kind of situation we find ourselves in that first is more important than best? Yeah, I think that's a really great comparison. Um, and, and it also points to this um, idea that, you know, we have to have a take on everything. So not even, you know, a news news outlet at least has like a sort of reason, at least like a business reason to, to do that. But for even just individuals, I feel like, you know, um, when something happens, a, a lot of people just feel like they are somehow obligated to have some kind of immediate, like hot take on that, rather than just kind of sitting with that information for a while, not just sitting with it, but, you know, getting more context, like, trying to get, you know, different sources of information or just waiting a while until that information comes out and then waiting even longer to decide, like, you know, what you think about that or or reflect on it or kind of synthesize it with other things that you know. I mean, I think we all know that things like that take time, and, and that's the sort of time that I feel is being taken away from us. You point out how already in 1877, Robert Louis Stevenson called busyness a symptom of deficient vitality and observed a sort of dead, alive, hackneyed people about who are scarcely conscious of living except in the exercise of some conventional occupation. I find that fascinating that this discussion was happening 142 years ago. You then add on a collective level, the stakes are higher. We know that we live in complex times that demand complex thoughts and conversations, and those in turn demand the very time and space that is nowhere to be found. Are we too busy to address the greatest challenges of our time, like climate change, racism, misogyny, inequality, and whatever else you'd like to add to that list? Are we too busy to make life now and in the future better. Is is that why we're not addressing these major problems because we've just made ourselves too busy? Um I mean, I'm not sure. I I mean, I I think there are people who are, are successfully doing that work, so I want to acknowledge that. Um and then I also I kind of don't want to put the onus too much on on us for being too busy because I think um like one of the things that I'm kind of or one of the ways I'm trying to distinguish my book from self-help is that you know, like the the typical kind of cadence of a self help book is like you have a problem, and I, and this book will give you the tools to solve it like once and for all. Um, and if you don't solve that problem, that's that's your fault. Um, and you, and it's like you know, uh, 
you didn't get your money's worth because it's because you did it wrong. Um, and I think my book is very different in that uh, I am I am addressing it to the individual and I am talking about the kind of like promise and potential of on an individual level learning to redirect one's attention. But but I am also kind of situating the problem of the attention economy and of this kind of um, busyness um, as not only part of this cult of productivity that's kind of I think been uh, we've all been steeped in. Um, but also, again, to come back to the kind of like economic reality, um, people have, uh, people are, I think a lot of people are just trying to make it work, right? Like, um, there are a lot of people who are just actually very busy, um, trying to make ends meet. Um, and so I, I would, I don't know if I would characterize it as like, you know, us being, or like making ourselves too busy to do this stuff. Um, I think maybe there are, there are some cases in which we we subscribe to the kind of cult of productivity without needing to. So maybe that kind of falls into that category. But um, I, I know the book kind of came out of this observation that um, I think, again, there are people who are doing the activism. And then I think there are people, uh, there's maybe another like group of people who would like to be involved in that or maybe be involved more effectively and, and are feeling sort of like too distracted and disassembled to be able to do that. I love that idea of a cult of productivity. Why does communicating more lead to communicating worse? If we do it so much, why can't we do it well? Because this reminds me of how bad we are at critically consuming media, despite the fact that we consume so much media. So why does communicating more lead to communicating worse? I think it has to do with the the kind of style and maybe the the depth or lack of depth. Um, I in the end of the book, I, I quote a study that somebody did um, where she interviewed um, some activists um, on kind of like how social media had, had worked and not worked for them. And, and one of the things that they observed was that, uh, you know, po- actual political dialogue takes time. It kind of has like an incubation time and it also has, in a way, an incubation space. Um, and then and they also noted that um, it had sort of created this absurd situation in which um, you had to be like, like it's it's sort of one of those situations where if everyone is doing something, you have to do it. So if everybody is is constantly shouting, um, kind of and shouting like short things, right? Like short things that are designed to grab your attention, then like you also have to do that. Um, so you have this kind of situation, which I'm sure people you know feel sort of um, rueful about, but you kind of have to do it. Where you have um, you know a- activists causes having to take on the language of marketing. Um, because that is what we have all learned how to do. Like we've all learned how to kind of like try to in this mass of information, try to grab someone's attention. So it's, it's not even necessarily like an issue of what's being said. It's like how it's being said. And, and unfortunately that format doesn't allow for that kind of longer dialogue or just kind of a more nuanced idea. Um, In that same study, she, she says that this is the reason that um, print media has still been really important in these circles is because it's kind of a slower media a slower medium and gives people kind of more time to discuss the ideas. Do you see that in the Green New Deal, this kind of branding that's trying to make something easy to understand with on social media platforms, but without looking at the intense substance of that idea? Um, I mean, I think some of it is is necessary, right? Like, I mean, even before the internet, um, any kind of movement uh, would, uh, you know, a large sort of nationwide movement, like had to find a way to sort of communicate their ideas to the, to the broad public, like, you know, to a person who has, um, no context whatsoever. So I think, um, 
some of that is on, on that sort of level is necessary. I think I'm talking more about like, like for one person who is, is not necessarily like someone who is commandeering like the the image of the entire thing to like everyone, but, but more just like, yeah, one person who um, is just kind of throwing these things again into the void um, in, in an effort to sort of uh, just stay afloat of the whole thing. Um, or even just, you know, I think that there are a lot of, uh, and and maybe like by saying this, I should just like I should stop tweeting. But I think that there are a lot of tweets that just shouldn't exist, right? Like there, there are. I think you can be interested in in following something like even you know something like the Green New Deal, and and you can be following it, you can be researching it, you can be getting more context, and like you know none of that could be showing up online, and it could look like you were you know quote unquote doing nothing. Um, but and you could be you know having those conversations offline, like in person. Um, or just engaging with kind of slower media or longer media. You quote the surrealist painter Giorgio de Chirico in the early 20th century, predicting, predicting a narrowing horizon for activities as unproductive as observation. And you write that the writer, the thinker, he writes that the writer, the thinker, the dreamer, the poet, the metaphysician, the observer, he who tries to solve a riddle or to pass judgment will become an anachronistic figure destined to disappear from the face of the earth. What does society lose within itself when it loses the writer, the thinker, the dreamer, the poet, the metaphysician, the observer who tries to solve a riddle? Does that mean the end of dissent? Um, it probably would, yeah, in a way, mean the end of dissent. I mean, I think even more broadly, it like, you know, it's I'm biased, right? I'm an artist, um, and that's like my background, and it's what I teach, but... Um, I think it's also art that reminds us to look at things differently. And so, yeah, that that encompasses something like dissent, but it also encompasses just like awareness, like, you know, just being aware of being alive and how strange the world is like these things that are um, so kind of profound and yet they're, they slip away very easily because um, we take them for granted. So um, I think it's, it's this whole, um, kind of arena of like ways of thinking that that are not so easily appropriated and super you know difficult to actually argue um in concrete terms for the value of so i mean it's something that i have experience with as someone who teaches um art to non-art majors at stanford um you know and stanford is very much a part of silicon valley um i am constantly in the position of, of having to kind of you know make an argument of like why why one should spend time on something as seemingly useless as art, especially when it's sort of not formulaic, it's not possible to really optimize, um, and it doesn't, it's not productive in ways that are very easy to point to. As you were saying, you're an artist. What kind of art does neoliberalism reward? Um, any art that looks like a product. <laughs> I mean, I just, I, I think something I've really been, observing and, and even like subject to as an artist is like I, it's like everything needs everything is turning into a product like you are turning into a product the idea of the self is turning into a product ideas utterances are products and then yeah so then you have like art that is a product like um i mean i mentioned in the book when i talk about being an artist in residence at the dump and i and i do that project with all of the the 200 objects and then it, like a huge amount of work that i did but i didn't make anything i I created context and I created an installation, right? But 
Um, but there was a woman at the at the opening who was like, I'm really confused. Did you actually make anything or did you just put things on shelves? And um, I actually now really enjoy describing my art practices, putting things on shelves. <laughs> but um, it was very helpful for me. But that's that kind of attitude, right? Where it's like, okay, but right, where's the art? Like, where's the thing that I can buy? Like, where's the where's the thing that I can like put on my wall or even not even necessarily that, but you know, like where's the big public sculpture. Um, and so it kind of, it's like um, any, any art that's like very um, easy to point to as like capital A art. Um, and then there's this, you know, all of these, and that's, you know, that's not recent, like throughout all of art history, there's artists have had to push against that conception of art. Um, it's just interesting to see like the sort of Instagram version of it happening now. Is doing nothing about, putting a spanner in the works of our culture and society is it doing essentially throwing clog, uh, clogs in the machine of capitalism is this kind of a throwback to the luddites um maybe i um yeah i i don't know i mean <clears throat> it is and that i'm kind of like trying to find um uh, this like i said earlier this kind of space to to pry open the cycle between um, the attention economy and then the kind of like mentality that it produces and, and then like just this like endless kind of uh, positive feedback loop that happens um, and that one place to kind of pry that open is just in the space of your own mind um, and learning to kind of direct attention in, in different ways um, to different scales of time and space and again that's where I think art is really helpful um, I mean, I will say like, it's not, a, my book is not an anti-technology book. So, um, I give examples of things like this, uh, this app called iNaturalist that lets you take pictures of plants and identify them. Uh, I would count even binoculars as a form of technology, um, that I use very often when I go bird watching. Um, and at the end of the book, I talk about, um, I, I try to imagine like a utopian social network, which ends up being a non-commercial decentralized network that still lets us share information in kind of a, the the ways that have always been like useful and fun for us um, even before the internet um, but have no financial incentive to like keep us on them all the time and are also not selling our data or selling things to us um, so I you know it's funny I just saw ironically a tweet the other day that was this kind of um, reminder that the Luddites were not also not anti-technology they were anti you know the, the ways in which technology was being used um, to, you know, dispossess and disempower people. Um, and so I guess I, I kind of maybe have that in common with them. You know, uh, you mentioned how you really love to do bird watching. Uh, we just talked to Bhaskar Sankara about his new book, The Socialist Manifesto. In his book, he has a fictional boss who is obsessed with bird watching. I don't know what's going on with the left in bird watching right now, Jenny, but there's something going on. <laughs> so what impact does neoliberalism have on community and what impact does it have on our demand for a community that Facebook supplies is is social media a response to community being undermined by neoliberalism um I think that's quite possible um and it and I think unfortunately you know for the figure of of a community I I keep um I find myself I keep using this phrase like extreme bottom line mentality where it's like the extreme, the sort of um, growth at all costs. Um, and then like, yeah, the sort of trying to find the bottom line. Um, and, you know, I talk about microtasking websites in the book as well as this kind of like you, you have 24 potentially monetizable hours, not eight work hours. 
Um, and so I, yeah, I think, um, sorry, I completely lost my train of thought. It's like really early for me. I haven't gotten up this early on a Saturday in a really long time. <laughs> Wait, where are you? I'm in Oakland. Oh, geez. It's not that early. Oh my God. <laughs> Well, I'm sorry, sorry for keeping. I'm sorry for Remind keeping you up. The question. No, that's okay. I'll just. Uh, what happens to this? Kind of follows up. On. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No. So I think. Um, so the extreme bottom line mentality, right? It's like this. If you, uh, as I was saying earlier, privilege is the visible and and kind of needing to have like deliverables, right? Like you need to have something to show for your time. Um, and again, this kind of turning everything, um, even like uh, parts of the community, into products. Um, and that's really unfortunate because um, so much of, you know, in-person communication, even between two people, is um, nonverbal. Um, so that's an example already of something that, like, you know, doesn't can't show up um, on, on something like a social media platform, but is, but is like, a, you know, a whole source of information of, like, how we interact with people. Um, and, and I think there's just all kinds of examples of like, you know, even reasons that we would want to be a part of community that, that again, are not easy to pin down Um can't really put a dollar sign on that. Um, it's actually maybe even hard to describe. Um, so there are all these kind of, um, I don't want to call them ineffable. Like I think you can describe them. And I think again, like artists and writers can really help us there, but um, there are all these things about community and ways that they work and reasons that we value them that um, kind of can't be, they don't show up in the capitalist framework. They just, they're like simply invisible because they can't be articulated in a way that fits into it. I knew you were in Oakland because you talk about it in your book, and now I can't see the Golden State Warriors jersey without thinking of the Jack London tree. At least I know why that's there now. <laughs> so you write, the yeah. point of doing nothing, as you define it, isn't to return to work refreshed and ready to be more productive, but rather to question what we currently perceive as productive. But is it up to us to determine what's productive? Isn't what's productive determined by people other than ourselves or the neoliberal globalized capitalism? Under capitalism, do we have a choice in determining what is productive or is it completely out of our hands? Um, again, I mean, I think it's kind of both. Um, but I think there's um, just kind of like broader framework of what is considered productive that we are all kind of subject to. And then there's these kind of smaller moments in which I think um, that you can uh, kind of walk away from that value system, um, you know, probably not permanently. I mean, I talk about the communes, uh, like the 1960s um, in chapter two and kind of what happened with them as a way of kind of blocking the exits after you read chapter one, where you're like, I want to move to the woods and live in a cabin and like never engage with capitalism again. Um, and then I'm like, okay, let's look at some people who tried to do that. Um, and so uh, I, I kind of end up with this weird compromise of like how to like disengage and engage at the same time. Um, I will say that I have been very, um, like, surprised by how many people in tech in Silicon Valley seem to have read this book so far. Um, and I uh, should probably talk to some of them <laughs> about what they think. I mean, you know, I, I sort of, like, optimistically feel like, you know, if this book spread around enough, like, maybe there would someone in some position... Um, would maybe like start to question like what they think is productive. Um, I don't know. Maybe that's like a pie in the sky sort of thing. But um, and it's not really not meant for that. But um, but in the meantime, I I think you're right. I think you know we don't really um, on the kind of level of just like daily existence and and like you know how we work don't really um, control that.
You write that deepening one's attention to place will likely lead to awareness of one's participation in history and in a more than human community. What do you mean by attention to place? Um, I mean, I mean it pretty literally. I um, it comes out of my own experience of of having lived. You know, I've lived in the Bay Area my entire life, and over the last two years, have been really kind of floored by how little I knew about it. Um, and I, I don't think you have to have lived in a, a place for a long time to have this experience. It's just especially surreal for me because I've had, you know, like so much time at, and I haven't, um, really learned about, uh, specifically, you know, my bioregion. So I talk about bioregionalism as this kind of, um, you know, uh, idea within environmentalism of just being familiar with, uh, with the local ecology of where you live and the natural history. Um, and so, and then, you know, also just even local local human history. Right. Um, and so I've been really humbled by, um, that process of learning about this area. And it's also, I mean, I'm a person who in my art and otherwise, am just generally curious and I enjoy the feeling of curiosity. So it's also just been really, um, rewarding to learn about, um, all of the kind of different actors in this place that I live and, and these things, you know, it's not, it's not inert, like, either in ecology or history, you're talking about like other things that are alive, um, that are around you or other, you know, other people who were alive, who lived in this place. Um, and so, uh, that's kind of, I mean, on a simple level, what I mean by attention to place is just like being aware, like looking at it at all. Um, and then kind of like starting to wonder about like what these things are and, and wondering about different patterns and like what makes this place different from another place. Um, and, and that to me is sort of resisting the, the placelessness of, of what we experience online where everything's sort of um, everything's the same and kind of um, lacking in spatial and temporal context. Um, like I contrast bird watching with looking at Twitter, where if you look at a bird and if you're a serious bird watcher, you need to know where you are. You need to know what time of year it is. Like all of these things will, will hugely narrow down like what it is that you're looking at and help you understand what it is and why it's acting the way it is. And then you go to Twitter and you have a piece of information that has like no spatial temporal context. You're not even seeing things in chronological order necessarily. Um, and so uh, I think that this kind of attention to place can, can help us like learn ways of seeking and inhabiting contexts that we've lost from these online contexts. You're right. The villain here is not necessarily the internet or even the idea of social media. It is the invasive logic of commercial social media and its financial incentive to keep us in a profitable state of anxiety, envy, and distraction. We also are experiencing, as we've talked to many guests on our show, an epidemic of loneliness. There's even a ministry of loneliness in the UK. George Monbiot has been on the show to talk about it with us. A whole bunch of people have talked to us about it. Um, So what happens when we live in a society that is not only suffering an epidemic of loneliness, but also a plague of anxiety, as well as these other issues that you bring up? What happens to our society when we live in this era of anxiety and fear? Um, Well, certainly, you know, not good for the individual, and it's not good for the community. I suspect it's also not good for things like organizing um, these things that kind of require us to reach out horizontally to other people around us. Um, and, you know, to come back even to, to tie it to the issue of place, um, one of the things I talk about is this idea that I, um, that I encountered in a different book about, uh, species loneliness, which is this term that describes the kind of loneliness that the human species 
um, experiences towards other life forms. Um, and so I, you know, I just, I say that because for me, loneliness, um, it obviously occurs like within our human realm, but I think it also, um, it, it's part and parcel of a larger issue of being alienated from place, like, um, not feeling at home, uh, not feeling that you are connected to, um, things that are outside of yourself. And, um, I, I'm pretty sure that somewhere in, in the, the book, I use the word entombed, that like you're sort of in algorithmic recommendations sort of entomb you in this idea of yourself that becomes like ever more um, kind of hardened and isolated from all of the things that could kind of um, surprise you and change you. Um, it's a little bit like, you know, uh, my boyfriend and I talk all the time about like this, you know, wave of people that moved to the suburbs at one point and like live these like super isolated lives. Um, of course, that's not everyone in the suburbs, right? But there was a kind of package deal that was offered at one point that was very popular for people where it's like, you know, I have my big McMansion and I have my car and I drive my car to my work and I kind of don't do things outside of that. And I don't talk to people who are outside of my family or like, you know, group of friends that I have some reason to be um, invested in. And um, it, it feels, um, you know, speaking of algorithms, like that just feels like a living algorithm. Um, you know, there's no sort of like openness to, um, you know, things that are truly other from you um, that would force you to kind of rearrange like how you think about things. Um, and there's also, you know, not a lot of opportunities for curiosity either. Um, and again, like I obviously enjoy being um, able to pursue my curiosity, but like that's how I'm reminded that I'm alive and not dead is <laughs> like being surprised by things um, and, and being surprised by other people and other things. So I think that, uh, you know, that's one of, for me, one of the saddest things that kind of comes out of this loneliness epidemic. How much does the filter bubble that you talk about, how much does that filter bu- bubble make us not have an engagement with things that are not, you know, planned and algorithmic, algorithmically distributed to us? Um, I think it has a pretty big effect. I mean, I, again, I'm sort of just judging from my own experience, but I, I contrast um, Spotify's Discover Weekly recommendations with the, the radio because um, my car doesn't have an aux input, so um, I can only listen to the radio. And I, I think three three or four out of five of my presets are all um, community radio stations uh, or college radio stations. Um, and, and I mentioned that, you know, although every week I've never had a discover weekly playlist that was just like, you know, I thought was terrible or something that was like something I really didn't like. It's always like, it's always good. Um, and it's certainly good for like music to listen to in the background or something. But um, you know, the radio is like, I'll hear something that I really don't like. And then I'll hear something that, not only do I really like, I didn't even know I liked that genre of music. Like, it's just like this comet that came from outer space or something like, or I'm like, wow, like, not only do I not know this artist or genre, like, I don't even know myself because I didn't know that I like this and I don't, like, can't really explain it yet, you know? So, um, so that kind of like expands my sense of self. Um, and it, um, you know, I think the ego is one of those things where, like, the more you stare at it, the more it dissolves. Like, you you can't really um, pinpoint it in this way. And that maybe, like, some of this um, desire for the personal brand and this, like, wholesale acceptance of these algorithmic recommendations, like, comes from this wish to have a kind of stable, um, almost product version of the self 
um, as a way of kind of staving off this actual psychological reality that the self is a very unstable thing. Um, and so my reaction to that is just like to welcome it and to, and to like, you know, have encounters with lots of different things, but, um, that's me. And, and that's certainly not how these things are sort of designed. That's why I subscribe to the newspaper because that way they're not, they don't have an algorithm for me individually. They may have an algorithm for their audience, but that way I stumble across articles that I would have never have gotten through the other filters and I do that with, you know, the New York Times. I get it at uh, the office. And then I buy local newspapers wherever I go. Small town newspapers are just fantastic because you don't have those filters and you're able to get the information, get the news that it would be kept from you otherwise. We're speaking with multidisciplinary artist and writer Jenny O'Dell, author of How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. How much is our virtual world and attention economy distracting us from the destruction of our real world, whether it's climate change or, for instance, the U.S. is in eight wars right now. And I I seriously doubt anybody can name them, although we should all memorize them. Is social media a distraction from even our nation being at war? Um, I think it probably is. I mean, if you, you know, to go back to that the very first sentence of the book, nothing is harder to do than nothing. I mean, part of the reason for that, I think, is that um, it's hard to sit with even a vague idea of what's happening right now. Um, just climate change by itself, right? Like, without even anything else. It's already um, something that, you know, exists on a scale that almost, like, threatens to, like, break your brain if you if you try to think about it. Um, and I, I, um, I think that in a lot of ways, like, it's very natural for like the mind to want to go anywhere other than that, like anywhere other than, than something that's really uncomfortable. Um, whether that's like, you know, something that's happening in the country or, you know, internationally, or just something that's happening like to you, right? Like if you, there's something bad happening in your life, like that's not a place where your, your mind kind of wants to sit. And then you have this super, you know, addictively designed thing in your pocket that um, is an immediate portal to, um, not only something else, but like many, many other things. Um, and, you know, I talk about context collapse in the book at the end where, um, you know, you have things that are horrifying next to things that are hilarious next to, um, things, you know, things that have nothing to do with each other, all kind of stacked up next to each other. And it's um, as much as we sort of complain about that and how distracting it is, it, it is very effective for a mind that's kind of trying to get away from from bigger problems or even, you know, um, we were talking about loneliness, like even to get away from that feeling of loneliness to feel like you're engaging with something. Um, so I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if it had a huge, you know, um, you know, it was contributing a lot to this kind of avoiding, avoiding something that's bigger, harder to talk about more nuanced, and, um, actually thinking about how to fit yourself into that and, and what you should be doing, uh, or saying, um, takes a little bit more time and more conversations to figure out. You tell this story, and I was telling my girlfriend on the way here, so i now got to repeat it because she absolutely loved it. You tell the story of the useless Qi from the Zhuangzi, a collection of writings attributed to Zhuangzhou, a 4th century Chinese philosopher. A carpenter sees a tree of impressive size and age, but the carpenter passes it by, declaring it a worthless tree that has only gotten to be this old because its gnarled branches would not be good for timber. Soon afterward, the tree appears to him in a dream and asks, are you comparing me with those useful trees? The tree 
points out to him that fruit trees and timber trees are regularly ravaged. Meanwhile, uselessness has been this tree's strategy. This is of great use to me, the tree says. If I had been of some use, would I ever have grown this large? The tree balks at the distinction between usefulness and worth made by a man who only sees trees as potential timber. The tree says, what's the point of this? Things condemning things. You, a worthless man, about to die. How do you know I'm a worthless tree. One of the taglines for our show is live from the planet where we know the price of everything and the value of nothing. What happens when we confuse or conflate worth with usefulness, price with value? Um, I mean, I think it just, you know, I'll, I'll add at the end of that story or that something that I, that I, it's actually the beginning of the story, but I talk about at the end of that description is that the, the, the story notes that the tree is so big that it's shading, you know, like many, many teams of oxen and, and, uh, you know, animals. And that, you know, the, the, it's sort of the other punchline of that story is that the tree is actually very, <laughs> it's very um, useful and that it's caring for all of these other, you know, hundreds of beings. Um, and so that makes this kind of, you know, the, the dream sequence even funnier. Um, and so I think, um, yeah, that, that story really, illustrates how um, a narrow concept of, of usefulness um, just hugely overlooks all of these other things that I think we, you know, instinctively know are useful. I mean, I talk about care and maintenance also in the book as things that are undervalued um, because they have, you know, not, you know, they've been done for free for a long time by women. Um, they, they've sort of invisible, they don't, uh, invisible and, you know, being hidden in the domestic sphere. Um, but they're the, the things, the very things that keep life alive. Um, they're the very grounds for life. Um, and so there are all kinds of things like that, especially under that, that category of care that, um, are the things that make everything else possible that don't show up in that kind of, um, that value system. Um, it's, you know, there's so much that, um, just can't be it, even like sleep you know it's a funny example but uh i was really inspired by this book called 24 7 um by jonathan crary and i think the subtitle is late capitalism and the ends of sleep um but he talks about you know like sleep is this this thing that the this sort of last remaining vestige of like human animality that can't be appropriated and it explains all of these like assaults on sleep on our need for sleep and trying to do away with it. Um, this developments of like drugs to kind of eliminate the need for sleep. Um, because like from it's again, it's like if it's very similar to the carpenter in that story where if you're a person who only sees time as money and you only see it as potentially, um, producing outcomes or, you know, deliverables or products, um, sleep appears useless. Of course, we all know sleep is not useless, and I think you know. I feel like I have the humility to, to like uh, allow that sleep is useful in ways that I don't understand, and I might not ever understand, and that's fine. I don't need to be able to articulate that. Like I recognize the the necessity of something like sleep. So I think there are a lot of things that are kind of similar to that. You uh, discuss what you call refusal in place as you look to the history of refusal and you try to show how that creative space of refusal is threatened in a time of widespread economic precarity when everyone from Amazon workers to college students see their margin of refusal shrinking and the stakes for playing along growing. Thinking about what it takes to afford refusal, I suggest that learning to redirect and enlarge our attention may be the place to pry open the endless cycle between frightened, captive, attention 
and economic insecurity. How can enlarging our attention address precarity? Um, I think there's a couple of different ways. I think just on the kind of individual level, um, again, you know, I said earlier that, that um, there are certain, you know, economic realities that a lot of us um, in different ways are, are subject to. But um, at least in my experience, I have found that there are these kind of very interstitial moments in which I actually can get away with um, thinking um, or paying a kind of different kind of attention than what I'm, what's being, uh, or what's these things are trying to extract from me. Um, so, I mean, I think it's, you know, some of the stuff is involuntary, but some amount of it, I think for some people is voluntary and it's kind of like finding, finding those moments where you have this small margin to be able to disengage just, you know, again, within the space of your own mind. Um, and then the thing that I sort of like hope for from that is that if more, you know, if more people are able to disengage even in just some small way, again, not like moving out to the woods or, or like, you know, uh, deciding to just sort of like give up or like forsake the world entirely or, or quit all social media and stop reading the news. Um, but that if, if more people were able to kind of, um, find more agency in the way that they direct their attention, that it might make, um, some conversations, uh, it might, you know, remind us of the value of certain types of conversations and reflections and help us have them. Um, again, you know, I end the book with that kind of idea of the the non-commercial social network. But I, I look at the kind of history of organizing and how much concentration that takes, how much focus, um, again, on the level of the individual and, and collectively, and these kind of um, small, small groups, like these kind of uh, large of, you know, federations of small groups. So these small groups in which people are able to have those nuanced conversations and, um, and feel recognized and accountable and have a context for what they're saying versus on something like Twitter. Um, and then, and then the kind of like larger order coordination of those groups in order to kind of share information and, and decide on, um, different forms of action. So, um, I think, you know, I would hope that my kind of suggestions around attention would would fit in somewhere there that it would make something like that um, easier not to mention just remind us of the value of those kinds of conversations and groups we have been speaking with multidisciplinary artist and writer jenny odell author of how to do nothing resisting the attention economy jenny has exhibited her art all over the world you can follow jenny on twitter at the Genitor, that's the underscore J-E-N-N-I-T-A-U-R. And you can find out more about Jenny at JennyOdell.com. Our final question for each and every one of our guests, Jenny, is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. You write that your most serious grievances with the attention economy, namely its reliance on fear and anxiety and its concomitant logic that disruption is more productive than the work of maintenance of keeping ourselves and others alive and well. How does the attention economy lead to disruption, which doesn't consider, doesn't care about its impact on the wellness of ourselves or others? How does social media lead us to have less compassion for others? Um. I think, you know, for for someone using social media, um, it's just, you know, an issue of distraction and, and being caught in that filter bubble, which is, again, reinforcing the ego. I mean, I think even when we're engaging with these things and we feel, you know, things that feel bad for us, like anxiety or 
um, just kind of uh, paralysis that still that's actually a very self-centered experience um, because it's centered around us. Um, and it, again, it's not allowing that space for encounters with things that are truly surprising or outside of what we asked for or what, or what we expected. Um, but I think on the level of, you know, where this technology is coming from, I mean, you use the word disrupt, like, um, again, I, I grew up in basically the middle of Silicon Valley and something that I, I definitely try to push against in the conclusion, which is called manifest dismantling. It's supposed to be the opposite of manifest destiny. Um, is I, you know, I think the, the philosophy behind disrupt is a really, um, uh, it's one that comes from a certain arrogance of not observing what is already there. So, so much of my book is this kind of plea to observe like what is already here, like what has already happened, who is already here. Right. Um, and so I think, social media is one of the kinds of technologies that comes out of this. Um, you know, like I'm sure you've read the articles like where you have a startup here that is like, Hey, we, we have this company where we have this like really big car that picks people up on their way to work and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then people are like, cool, that's a bus. You invented a bus. Um, so there's, um, this kind of like the disrupt comes, I think from this mentality of like, kind of creating an imagined blank slate or just thinking that the slate is blank already and then just innovating this thing on top of it that is this like brand new shiny product um all the while kind of ignoring the all of the texture of kind of what was already there um so on that side of things i think it's also um not great in terms of like uh you know working with the communities that are that are already here um both human and non-human and, and being attentive to them and you have this great concept of bioregionalism, and our our listeners have to definitely check out your book, Jenny O'Dell's How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. Jenny, thank you so much for being on our show this week. This is a, another fantastic work. Two books in a row on our show that were just really great. So thank you very much, Jenny. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Live from the good old U.S. of A., where capitalism is all our pimp, this is hell. If you want to make certain capitalism doesn't become this is hell's pimp, support this is hell by going to thisishell.com and Click on support. When you do, we will send you a gift that you can pick from at our site. Again, this is hell.com, and then click on support. We have a tote bag, a t shirt, a stainless steel camping coffee mug. It's all very cool. Thanks this week goes to <clears throat> Kilter and Adrian for their tithing commitment to This Is Hell. Thanks to Bailey for supporting This Is Hell this week by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Travis also showed his support for This Is Hell and writes, please buy the thing that fixes. The phone quality. We're working on it, Travis. And yes, our phone sound quality is actually much better at our own studio, thanks to supporters like you. And I believe we've spent about 50, no, I'd say about 500 times less money than they spent on this place. We also got support and an email from Joseph who writes, please send me a This Is Hell coffee cup and a This Is Hell t-shirt. We bastards must stick together for... This is hell. Thanks to everyone who supported This is Hell this week. And in the coming days, weeks, months, and years of the Trump administration, your support will be needed more than ever. If you want to be thanked on air, support This is Hell. And get a This is Hell coffee mug, t-shirt, and or tote bag. Go to thisishell.com and click on support. I'm going to skip all of this stuff. Okay, let's read your answers to this week's question from hell, which is... What are you not doing right now? What are you not doing right now? All replies right on air right now. This week's winner gets 
One of the books we feature, the book we just featured on this week's show, Jenny O'Dell's How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. Again, the question from Elle is, what are you not doing right now? Leave your response right now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, to still have a chance at winning this week's prize, Jenny O'Dell's How to Do Nothing. Alex, you have all the answers because. Uh, What are you not doing right now? Tom H. says, killing Nazis. (laughs) Stephen S. says, reading. Ronaldo M., eating animals. Uh, Eliana D. says, not smiling. So she is smiling? (laughs) I guess so. Clive D. says, dreaming of food forests, and I actually am planting seeds. Andrea J., and this is, Andrea, this is pandering uh, to Chuck. Andrea J. said, being sober. Tom D. said, capitulating to the kitty caterwauling for more kibble. What are you? Who not- said that? Uh, that was Tom P. So it wasn't anybody who has to do with the feral cat that lives outside our studio. Oh, uh, yeah, we need to actually buy something to soundproof uh, that cat's walling <laughs> from outside of my room. Uh, what are you not doing right now? Wally R says rousting. <laughs> Eric T says achieving my goals, feeling optimistic, adding whiskey to my morning coffee. I swear. Chris H says. Or at least, oh wait, oh, he's said something I'll only find where he's going. Uh, Fabio L. said, I'm not procrastinating. Really, I swear. Shut up. No, you. Krimsky <laughs> K. says, I'm listening to nerd, uh, Nerdrotic Podcast. So maybe he's not, not doing that? that yeah. uh, Jack W. says, I'm tabling the thought of throwing my hat into the Democratic primaries <laughs> by not Beto leaping onto a nearby table. <laughs> what are you not doing right now? Psalm S. says, I'm not giving any thought to my answer. Jeffy D says, earning a decent living. <laughs> Richard M says, giving an F. Jeff E says, riding a bus to see a show of Jordan Belson's art. What are you not doing right now? Garrett L said, sticking it to the man. <laughs> ben H says, televising the revolution. Adam, <laughs> Who said that? That was uh, Ben H. Adam A says, I am not going to answer this question. <laughs> oh, wait. Austin RM said, I am not promoting my personal brand. What are you not doing right now? Dan T said, not attempting to pass the genetically modified foodstuffs of our more modern corporate agribusiness model through the lower end of my digestive system. <laughs> I had genetically engineered ice cream this week. Got sick. Basically, I'm not taking a dump. <laughs> JC says, I'm not buying any chrome rabbits. <laughs> he's buying chrome rabbits. Or he, he, he's not not doing it? Yeah. Zach A said, wearing pants. Tom G said, avoiding weeping. Who said wearing pants? Zach A. All right. Marco G said, being a revoltingly optimistic entrepreneur. <laughs> DME said, assisting the empire. What are you not doing right now? Pammy H says, bugging Alex for my TIH stickers us Patreon people are supposed to get. Pammy, I got a bunch of them going to you. Uh, don't worry. We'll go to everyone else, too. Scott M said, listening to This Is Hell. We'll do later. What are you not doing right now? Anthony S. says, pitching my million-dollar ideas on Shark Tank. Dan T. says, I'm definitely, certainly not building a guillotine. Nope, not even remotely. Gregory M. says, living anybody's best life. (laughs) Who's that? That was Gregory M. Graham M.M. said, not reading The Origins of Mass Opinion by John Zaller, which I should be summarizing for presentation on Tuesday. Olga E. says, I am not shopping, not streaming, and not following a damn thing. Other than this podcast. <laughs> what are you not doing right now? For the last, uh, Nick E says, for the last hour, I was not replying to this question, but then I finally had to respond or you wouldn't have known what I hadn't been doing. 
Michael G says, hanging in a hammock with an uncorked bottle of wine beside me. By the way, that guy looks like my dad. Uh, I posted a classic art image of uh, a guy hanging out in a, in a hammock. Alexandra C. says, I'm not, not working on my day off. <laughs> crying emoji. Chandler H. said, enjoying life. <laughs> what are you not doing right now? John M. said, getting and spending, laying waste my powers. And Nora P. says, so uh, I love this question. Or, so, so much. I love this question, and then I saw the image of a mouse in the shape of some crumpled tissue on my table, and I credit this great question. Nora, I might want to check the gas in your apartment. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if the question was the one that's doing that to you. Uh, Stephen P. says, not drinking the Kool-Aid. Chris M. says, raising the people's army and seizing control of the state. And a couple of people on Twitter. Uh, time is short, MFers, says, I am not having a good time. Eat fart 69 our old friend, said, I'm not looking forward to being forced to wear khakis for a memorial service I'll be attending later today. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. Can Ooh. you repeat that one again? I am not looking forward to being forced to wear khakis for a memorial service <laughs> I'll be attending later today. Damn, that is... That is who said that? That was uh, Eat Farts 69. Okay. Our old friend Eat Farts 69. Bradsky Nomaths said, I'm sadly not celebrating an end to the dysfunctional and corrupt Australian coalition government. Three more years of BS, I guess. <laughs> and uh, Bradsky has been writing us a bunch with suggestions uh, for us covering Australian politics. And oh, yeah. na now that we are not wedded to the Saturday morning time slot, uh, I really want to get some uh, Australian stuff happening on the show. Yeah. Uh, Sean Ongley said, enjoying the sunny day on the creek bed by my house. Uh, Brick Collage said, reading the comments on any news site. <laughs> what are you not doing right now? A couple more responses. Al B said, looking away from the screen. <laughs> Ooh, that's good. Uh, Marvis Jaffrey said, paying much attention. Uh, past guest Pavlos Rufos said, enjoying the first day of sun in Berlin after weeks of cold and rain. Reading instead about or ordo liberal participation in the Nazi regime. <laughs> and then uh, another type of liberals I have to have a problem with now. Jeez, come on, Pavlos. Uh, more work for us. And then finally, Hot Lead Enema huh, hmm. said, supporting the two party system. What are you not doing? <laughs> <laughs> My response to the question, what are you not doing right now? Right now, I'm not doing the most revolutionary act there can be if doing nothing is indeed revolutionary. I am not sleeping. But I will be in the backseat of a 2006 Nissan Sentra with its bumper falling off and over 110,000 miles on it and going in about, in about 90 minutes, of, 90 of your Earth minutes. So, uh, revolution. Backseat of the Nissan Sentra. Here I come. Oh, sorry. One more person. Uh, Merck Perch said, giving a ampersand percentage sign hashtag at sign. Ah, I, I got you. So let's see. That makes this week's winner. Uh, Tom H. Killing Nazis. That's good. Elian D. Not smiling. Being sober was good. Wally saying rousting. Ben H. saying... <laughs> Uh, televising the revolution, Zach A wearing pants, uh, Gregory M saying that living that he's not living everyone's best life. Chandler H says H said that he was not enjoying life. Eat fart sixty nine saying not looking forward to wearing khakis at a funeral that he was going to. I'm going to go with Chandler H. And enjoying life. Again, his answer to this week's question from Hal, what are you not doing right now? Chandler H. said, enjoying life. You have won Jenny O'Dell's How to Do Nothing. 
resisting the attention economy. Thanks to everyone for coming out this week to This Is Hell Office Hours. Also, thanks to everybody for participating in this week's Question From Hell. Uh, thanks, everyone, for coming out to This Is Hell Office Hours at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, which happen every Wednesday from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. Sometimes they don't start till 7 p.m., 7.15, because we're doing the Patreon podcast at times on Wednesday nights. We try to do it on Tuesday afternoons, but sometimes it cuts a little bit into office hours. So drop by on Wednesday evenings. We're there until at least 9 p.m. Drop by, drink, hang out, watch me drink. Get some free This Is Hell advertising stickers and free show-related books. Thanks to everyone who dropped by this week. Thanks to Nate, Eric, Joel, Wally, Matt, Dave, Leo, Pete, Elliot, Jordan, Shelley, John, another John, and Johnny, and everyone else I can't remember because I skipped dinner and went right to a supper of... IPAs. Join us at Carrie's The Bar Downstairs from our studio every Wednesday from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. 2251 West Devon in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. And today, Carrie's Lounge is celebrating their 47th anniversary, 47th year in business by having a party for all of their patrons. There's going to be food. There's going to be music. It's happening all day Long. If you've never been to Carrie's before, this is a great opportunity for you to go. It's a Saturday afternoon instead of a Wednesday evening. So go drop by Carrie's Lounge 2251 West Devon today and celebrate their 47th anniversary. They're huge supporters of This Is Hell, so please show your support for them. If you are an artist or you know an artist, that would be a welcome addition to our annual This Is Hell, This Is Art show. During our anniversary and listener appreciation party on Saturday, July 27th at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, email me you or your or their art, and we'll definitely consider it to be part of the 2019 show. Again, email me your art or someone's art you like to chuck at thisishell.com, and they could be part of this year's annual This Is Art show that happens during our anniversary party every year. We're also looking for musicians to perform as well. So if you're an artist or a musician or you want to suggest artists or musicians to take part in our anniversary and listener appreciation party this year at Carrie's on July 27th, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. All right, let's go back into... Let me get rid of this. I don't need this anymore. Let's go back to listener feedback just for a second while we're waiting to get our next guest on air. Listener John wants us to have a past guest back on. John writes, Mr. Mertz, please have Henry Giroux on for an hour. John. Okay, John, if you say so. We'll definitely have Henry back on the show. Listeners love when we talk with Henry. You can hear all our conversations with Henry Giroux at thisishell.com by searching on Henry Giroux, G-I-R-O-U-X. Got another request for a returning guest. Patsy writes, time for another George Monbiot interview. Patsy then links to a new Guardian article by George called Stop Eating Fish, It's the Only Way to Save the life in our seas. Oh God, I got to stop fish and beef now. So I think I'm down to chickens. So we got to get Henry and George back on. We got an email from somebody who I apparently had a conversation with at this is hell office hours this past Wednesday night at Carrie's Lounge, where we have our weekly meet and greet every Wednesday night. John writes, Chuck, just touching base as it were, 
We met Wednesday at Carey's. Said would give you a shout. You mentioned Michael in Colorado and recordings he made about religion. If you could send me a link to this, his website and then maybe put us in touch, that would be excellent. Otherwise, maybe land down at the studio for a recording, if that's okay. Our site is religica.org. I am at the low end of the operation doing the news, unlike my big-thinking colleagues. Good meeting, John. This all sounds vaguely familiar, but I did miss dinner on Tuesday, so I was lit, John. If I said anything about using the studio, that was incredibly premature because we can barely use it yet. So, uh, however, you know, please drop by office hours again and feel free to remind me about whatever it was we were discussing. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, fighting climate change with new technology means potentially contributing to climate change. During the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin remembers nostalgia. We'll also have what we've been up to on the Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell, where we give you an additional one hour of content every week. We want to keep reminding you all about our upcoming anniversary and listener appreciation party happening at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon on Saturday, July 27th. So put that in your calendar. We want to thank some listeners for sharing This Is Hell online and what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's This Is Hell is Alex Jerry, along with Leo O'Connell. The planet's on fire. So yes, this is hell. Sure, it would be great if the Green New Deal would solve all our problems and lead us into a world that is not the dystopian hellscape we're likely to encounter in our inevitable future of societal collapse. But it won't work if the Green New Deal itself actually contributes to climate change during its implementation. Here to give us the bad news on what we hope can be a very, very good thing. Author and poet Jasper Burns wrote the Commune Mag article, Between the Devil and the New Deal, We Cannot Legislate and Spend Our Way Out of Catastrophic Global Warming, which you can find at communemag.com, where Jasper is managing editor. Welcome to This Is Hell, Jasper. Hi. Thanks for having me, Chuck. You can find out more about Jasper at jasperburns.net. That's B-E-R-N-E-S.net. And you can follow Jasper on Twitter at Outside Agitator, which is another great Twitter handle. You describe <laughs> how from space, the Bayan Oboe Mine in China, where 70% of the world's rare earth materials are extracted and refined, almost looks like a painting. The paisleys of the radioactive tailings, ponds, miles-long concentrate, the hidden colors of the earth... Material aquamarines and ochres of the sort of a, a painter might employ to flatter the rulers of a dying empire, which is a frightening picture. And although they look different in their devastation, it reminded me of memes on social media a few years ago comparing sites of tar sands mining to scenes of Mordor from Lord of the Rings. Uh, you yeah. add to meet the demands of the Green New Deal, which proposes to convert the U.S. economy to zero emissions renewable power by 2030. There will be a lot more of these mines gouged into the crust of the earth. What progress, if any, is being made in replacing our current energy sources with one that can create an equivalent amount of energy without contributing to climate change? What progress? Exactly. Well, I think that's 
I, I think that that's uh, difficult to assess. I mean, certainly the amount of renewable energy that's being generated in, in the United States and in other countries has increased, but so has the amount, the total amount of energy that's being used. So if you, you know, if you, if you replace um, certain energy sources with renewables, but those other energy sources still continue to be used in, in, in greater amounts, then you really haven't done much. Uh, and so far, that's been largely the effect of the kind of renew, increase of renewable energy, that it hasn't, that hasn't offset um, anthropogenic gas-emitting energy sources, uh, but rather just um, perhaps allowed those, those, the use of those sources to increase less quickly. Uh, and that's not going to stop catastrophic global warming to At best it might it might delay it a little bit to fight climate change do we all need to just quit consuming as much energy as we do is the only way to actually fight climate change at all is to just simply quit our energy consumption more or less yes i mean you know i'm not saying that we are all going to not consume any energy whatsoever or that's a kind of reasonable uh, projection or plan. But yes, there's no solution to the kind of crisis of global warming that doesn't involve a reduction of the amount of energy that each person is using. And that's certainly the case in kind of high energy consumption areas like the United States, uh, where people are using, you know, six or eight times as much uh, energy as, as people in the poorest countries. So for perhaps for people in the poorest countries, we could have a transition where they were using more energy. But for those of us in the United States, we're going to have to find a way to use less energy. Uh, and so simply, you know, adding in new renewable technologies, that's not going to cut it. Uh, and there's a lot of these fantasies about kind of technological solutions to this problem, free, clean energy. Uh, but those don't really seem anywhere on the horizon. If you look at the IPCC report, uh, the kind of consensus of the world scientists, uh, they don't really give any credence to these kinds of technologies. Uh, they don't think that most of them are going to be available uh, in the next you know, few decades. So, to fight climate change, do uh, well, let me just get back to something else. Our, our economy and the innovations it creates depends upon, even demands energy consumption and growth to right. work. How dependent is our economic system then on consuming as much energy as possible and constantly consuming more in the form of growth for continued success. How dependent is our economy on the causes of climate change? They're, they're, they're directly correlated. Um, more or less, all economic growth has meant growth in per capita energy consumption. That's been consistent across uh, the entire history of capitalism. And capitalism didn't really become a dynamic um, uh, self generating system of constant growth until uh, capitalists found uh, these kinds of uh, fossil fuel energy sources, chiefly coal, right? It was coal that enabled um, capitalism become, to become this kind of machine, this automaton of constant growth. So, uh, yeah, I think that, that um, it's unclear that it, it's unclear um, that you could have capitalism without constant growth. And it's also unclear that you can have constant growth without uh, fossil fuels. Do we have to end 
globalization to fight climate change because he write the renewable energy supply chain is a complicated hopscotch around the periodic table and around the world to make a high capacity solar panel one might need copper from chile uh, indium from australia gallium from china and selenium from uh, germany so do we have to end globalization in order to fight climate change and can we fight climate change by ending global uh, you know would that if we were fighting climate change, uh, would that actually be globalized? Well, I think it really depends what you mean by globalization. When people use that term, they're referring to a transformation of capitalism that's occurred over the past 30 years. And, and what that's about is not about bringing everybody closer together or kind of linking the, the, the fate of nations um, for some sort of uh, reasons of um, you know peace and harmony, but really it's about allowing multinational corporations to go all over the world and find the cheapest labor possible, right? So the reason that so much of the stuff that we consume in the United States is made in China is not uh, because it's more efficient to do it there, but because it's cheaper and you can make more profit. If you remove the profit imperative, um, it wouldn't really make sense to do things the way that we're doing them. Uh, it would be, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't, if you just, if you paid everybody the same, it would be too expensive to make it in China, right? Um, and it would be wasteful to ship things halfway across the world. Um, and so, you know, really outside of capitalism and the logics of capitalism, it doesn't make a lot of sense to do these things that way. And then when you think about trying to conserve uh, energy and emit fewer greenhouse gases, it really doesn't make sense to ship things all over the world. Now, there are some things that are kind of scarce resources and that you really you can't get where you live. Uh, but that's not really what globalization is about in any way. Um, so, yeah, I think that if we want to reorganize the economy and the way that we live uh, in a way that, that, that makes sense, that isn't crazy, uh, yeah, we're going to have to kind of break the link uh, of these global markets. And we're going to have to find ways to kind of feed ourselves and make shelter and produce the things we need. Uh, using less energy, and that means localizing a lot of production. Uh, but at the same time, I think that that kind of process to be successful needs to be a global process, and you can still build connections between people living, you know, thousands of miles away. Um, and and there can be another kind of globalization that's about kind of assistance and solidarity, uh, communication, etc. So you know, I and I don't think. To answer your second question, I do not think that that the you know that it means in turn that we can just you know wall ourselves off uh, from the world economy and that's going to on its own fix the problem. That's absurd. Um, and yes, I mean you could also be incredibly uh, wasteful as a kind of you know autarkic economy that's turned away from the world. Uh, I don't I don't really think that that is a solution either. Um, but then again, I don't think any countries are really capable of doing that. So, uh, yeah, I think that's, that's, that's my sense of the connection between globalization and the problem of global warming. You mentioned Emil Zola writing in the 19th century in German, uh, pretty much a critique of fossil fuel extractivism, a, a critique of coal mining. To what extent was there public debate and discussion about mass fossil fuel consumption from the very beginning? Did anyone predict not necessarily climate change, but inevitable environmental destruction? Because we're often given the sense that 
they were innocents who didn't know better, who were only trying to do the right thing for their children for the next generation, a more wealthy, healthy, and less harsh world of automation and leisure. So was there debate over fossil fuels from the beginning? You know, I don't, I'm, I'm not sure that I know that much about the, the, the kind of history of uh, coal use in the 19th century to really accurately answer that question. But I do know that, um, that, that you know, coal uh, made people's lives miserable uh, from the beginning, both by kind of polluting cities and, you know, occasionally uh, filling them with so much smoke that, that people were getting sick. And, of course, the coal mines themselves were miserable places, and people reacted to both of those kinds of conditions. Um, there were all kinds of worries in the 19th century about the kind of scarcity of various resources and the unsustainability of, of capitalism. Um, I don't, I think that, you know, uh, Jevons notes that, um, that, uh, energy use is, he's a 19th century economist, energy use in- increases with, uh, economic growth uh, and worries about what will happen when coal runs out. So, but beyond that, I'm not sure I, I, I know enough to really answer the question. You write, monsters are products of the earth in classical mythology, children of Gaia born from the caves and hunted down by a cruel race of civilizing sky gods. But in capitalism, what's monstrous, monstrous is earth as animated by those civilizing energies. In exchange for these terrestrial treasures used to power trains and ships and factories, a whole class of, of people is thrown into the pits. How much do you think the public understands, recognizes, and realizes that exchange that exchange and accepts it? Has there always been the same kind of unwritten agreement in a way? Well, I think that um, you know, I, I think it depends on where you live. Um, if you live in West Virginia, you you probably have a good sense of what it means to work in a coal mine. Although now coal miners are compensated uh, much better than they were. Uh, and I think the conditions are better in some ways, but it's still dangerous, uh, dangerous work. Um, but, you know, fewer and fewer people are working in these kinds of sectors because of automation and because, uh, you know, there's been a kind of uh, outsourcing of, of a lot of kind of mineral and extraction work. So I think a lot of people don't have any sense of what it means to work in a mine um, historically or at present. But then if you live in a mining community, of course you do. Uh, so, you know, but, but a lot of the kind of mines and, uh, mining areas have been closed down and coal is, you know, no longer, uh, being used at the same kind of rate in the United States. So, so yeah, you write energy is never clean. The infrastructure of the modern world is cast from molten grief. You're an excellent writer, Jasper. Uh, do we actively <laughs> delude ourselves actively? Do we actively delude ourselves into believing that our actions do not have a negative impact on the world? And to you, what does it say about a society that is in such kind of active denial if you think it is active? Well, I, you know, I, I don't think that I don't think that you can evaluate any action to conclude whether it's negative or positive because you would have to be it, it it's always a question of relative to what and you know, we don't we don't know in advance the kind of the meaning or the effect of our actions in full, and that's what makes politics politics, right? Is that people do these things and they're um, they don't know whether the effects will be will be uh, the effects that they intend. In fact, usually they're not the effects they intend. So, you know, it's I'm not blaming people for being involved in a system 
that is violent at, at every level and every place. You, you know, you have no choice, right? I drive a car uh, and, and because uh, my life requires that I do so. Uh, I, you know, so I think that, that um, you know, I'm, it's not really a moral perspective. Uh, and in terms of awareness, I, you know, I think that our, our awareness is, is, is limited. And that's because we live in these societies that are enormously complex. Uh, and they're all designed to kind of occlude uh, the sources of violence, right? So we're not, there's not a lot done to make um, the world visible to us because the way that the economy is organized is kind of predicated on you just doing your job in this one place. There's no attempt to make where you are within the system visible. I think that, you know, I think a society that was truly free and truly equal uh, would you know, that would be a really important part of it, would be that it was transparent so that you understood what you were doing and the effects of what you were doing and you were sort of connected to people and you saw yourself as, uh, you know, connected to this whole social process. But there's no emphasis on that at all. Uh, and, 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 and our society is incredibly technical and complex, so it's, it, you know, difficult to understand what's happening. I, I take great interest in trying to, you know, learn about how, uh, how things work uh, that's, you know, that's the thing that I really enjoy in writing these pieces is digging into the kind of technical characteristics of, say, the energy system. I find it really fascinating to understand how, how these processes function. I don't have a background in, in science or engineering or mathematics, but I think it's important to try uh, as best I can to understand really how these things work and, you know, whether certain adaptations or reconfigurations are possible. Are you dismissing the Green New Deal or, and I think this is really important because there's so many, so much writing is like this nowadays where people are saying, you know, uh, we want, we're trying to start a conversation, whether it's on socialism or climate change or whatever the case is, we're trying to start a conversation. Green New Deal started a conversation. Do you feel like you are part of that conversation, the Green New Deal, or do you feel like you are dismissive of the Green New Deal in its entirety? No, I'm definitely part of the conversation, uh, and I hope that my article doesn't come off as dismissive. I think that a lot of people who are invested in the Green New Deal, they are uh, sincere people, they are intelligent people, uh, and in many cases, they want the same kinds of things that I do. And I think that's important to recognize. They are not, in this world, they're enemies, but, but uh, the people I'm in, engaging with are not my enemy. And I'm certainly not dismissing their action. Uh, but one of the things with the Green New Deal is that, you know, right now it's a it's a policy proposal and a discussion. Um, and so I think that it's, you know, fair game to really talk about whether it will work or not. Um, I think it would be, my reaction would be very, very different if we had a massive social movement in the United States. Uh, that we're calling for something like a Green New Deal. But that's not what this is, right? This is a project that sort of originated within the nonprofit world as it intersects with um, elected politicians uh, and that is being kind of promoted by a whole network of uh, publishing initiatives and podcasts, etc. Uh, it's, you know, it's an idea. And I think ideas are, you know, are fair game. It's worth, it's worth asking, you know, if they're the right ideas. Uh, I think that the 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 hopeful take on it is that um, this is about kind of changing 
changing hearts and minds and and getting people to you know to have some hope um that uh that these problems are changeable uh and I understand that and I think that you know that that work is important uh but it seems to me that that hitching that that conversation to a uh, a kind of policy initiative like this or and and particularly a set of kind of electoral campaigns is um, I worry about the effects of that. I worry that, in fact, it will make it harder to do the kinds of things that we need to do in order to, uh, you know, really uh, save our own lives and the lives of the people who are to come. We are speaking with author and poet Jasper Burns, who wrote the Commune Mag article, Between the Devil and the Green New Deal. You can find the article at communemag.com, where Jasper is the managing editor. He is the author of 2017's The Work of Art in the Age of Deindustrialization. He also has two books of poetry out, titled We Are Nothing and So Can You, and Stars Down. Find out more about Jasper at jasperburns.net. That's B-E-R. N-E-S dot net. We recently spoke to sustainability scholar Jem Bendel, who no longer believes sustainability should be pursued, seeing the field as a failure. Instead, Jem says it's time to figure out how we will adapt to climate change. Can capitalism adapt to climate change? Can we make green new capitalism that would create a green new deal? Mm. Well, I think that capitalism may adapt to uh, climate change. I think the chance of capitalism surviving the 21st century is probably pretty low. Uh, And what seems more likely to me is that something will replace capitalism in climate change that is not at the same time a kind of an emancipatory social form, but will will have some other kind of class society organized through other principles um, that may in fact be even uglier than what we have already. And, um, but I think that in, in I think that capitalism will adapt as climate change uh, increases. Uh, but it will adapt uh, not by mitigating the situation and improving uh, improving uh, everyone's lives and keeping everyone alive, but by kind of building walls and build, building fortresses for the rich by engaging in kind of risky geoengineering uh, and doing things like that. So I you know one of the things I'm most worried about. Is I'm as worried about um, I'm as worried about climate change happening and you know killing off uh, most of our companion species on the planet and potentially endangering the lives of millions, maybe billions of people, um, and you know uh, completely changing the planet. I'm as worried about that as I'm worried about a geoengineering response because you know we don't control. Most people in this world have no control over. Uh, what is done in their name. And it's not hard for a government to decide they're going to geoengineer uh, and send up a bunch of rockets into space filled with, or into the sky with, filled with, uh, you know, sulfur and uh, you know, start trying to control the, the, the temperature on the planet that way. Um, so in that, you know, who knows what the consequences of that will be. So, you know, I think that there are a lot of, there are a lot of dangers beyond just climate change. The political consequences of it uh, you know, are are going to be quite um, quite severe. You know, unless we can come up with kind of revolutionary movement to counter those sorts of ruling class projects. 
One last question for you, Jasper. I wish we could go longer, but unfortunately our show is being truncated today due to special programming. I've got, I've, I've only got about 60 other questions for you, so we could have wrapped this okay. up in the next three hours, I'm sure. Four, you do this for four hours every, every Saturday? Yep, for four hours, sir, without any commercial interruptions. Yeah. It's also suicidal. So you might want to think about that, too. Uh, We've been speaking with author and poet Jasper Burns, who wrote the Commune Mag article, Between the Devil and the Green New Deal. Our final question for each and every one of our guests is called The Question from Hell. It's a question we might hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. You write the new of the Green New Deal must express itself in language decidedly old, appearing to great-grandpa's vanished workerism and the graphic style of WPA posters. Is the problem with the Green New Deal... Not the green part, but the New Deal part. If we want the Green New Deal or something like its goals to succeed, do we need to take the New Deal out of the Green New Deal? Well, you know, I think that a lot of people who, you know, in response to criticisms of the the New Deal part of the Green New Deal, they say, well, I didn't choose the language. I'm just working with uh, what we have. But I do think that it's dangerous to kind of draw upon um, these historical examples without really understanding the context and, and to kind of, uh, you know, misappropriate them as, as it were. I mean, the important thing that I would, would say is that, you know, the New Deal, that wasn't what, that wasn't the demand of the era, right? The, the workers who were organizing in the 1930s, uh, they were not calling for a New Deal. The New Deal was a response for the things that they were calling for. And I think it's really important to kind of to, to note that there was that there was that back and forth uh, between people struggling between mass movements and the government response to it. One of the problems with I think that the New Deal as a demand is that it collapses that distance between movement and the state. Uh, and I'm really worried about the consequences of collapsing that distance. So I would say yes, in that sense, that turning the, turning the New Deal into a slogan or a demand is misguided. I would be better if we had a movement that was you know that had demands such as carbonize now um, or something like that uh, and then you know kind of putting pressure uh, on the state to do that and attempting to kind of decarbonize in its own way by blocking pipelines or kind of engaging in direct action uh, I think that's a more promising sort of political vision for our times Jasper I really appreciate you being on the show and like I said we could have talked about this for another hour it's a fantastic article a lot of people are responding to it on social media continuing that conversation that needs to be done around addressing climate change so thank you so much for your work and thank you for being on our show thanks for having me Chuck this is hell where we put people before profits which turns out to be a horrible business model during the moment of truth in just like a minute Jeff Dorchin is going to remember nostalgia. Speaking of our horrible business model, we just want to tell everybody that this week's Patreon uh, podcast that we just that we put up on Friday, it features our interview, our first interview ever with Noam Chomsky that happened on September 1st, 2001, only 10 days before 9-11, where he basically, he kind of predicts a Trump-like pre- presidency coming. And I also mentioned during that uh, pa- Patreon podcast that we're having, this is hell, is having a presidential primary fantasy league. And if you want to get involved, you got to subscribe to patreon.com slash this is hell to hear exactly what we're doing. Special thanks to people who signed up on Patreon this week, including Jim Schaefer, Tim, Natalie, Craig, Ryan, CK, and Theron. 
during the moment of truth, Jeff is going to remember nostalgia, and I'm positive that Alex already has Jeff on the line. I know he does. One, two, you know what to do. Okay, I can't hear the theme, so I'm just going to assume that it's time to start talking. It's nostalgia time again. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. It's nostalgia time on premium cable. I mean, it's always nostalgia time on premium cable, but man, Muhammad Ali got me listening to the Motor Booty Affair. This is Howard Cosell reporting live from the Motor Booty Affair. Hey, remember when Muhammad Ali the boxer, refused to go to Vietnam and fight against the North and the VC. Remember why? Because it was a racist war. He wasn't getting treated like a human being by the official society here in the USA, and he didn't like that much. So why should he go do the same thing to some strangers on the other side of the world who'd never done him any harm? Remember that? Or something like that? That was when refusing to go to war wasn't easy. You were forced to go to war. If you refused, you went to jail. You lost your championship title. There were consequences. Nowadays, they can't force you to go to war. They just make you so poor you have no choice but to join the army. But it is a choice, isn't it? Remember back when? When the world was sort of different, although since then, the cruelties have shifted around from public sector to private sector, from overt coercion to subtle tacit coercion? Here and there, now and then, nostalgia is unnecessary. You really just need the proper tools of interpretation, and you are instantly transported from the enlightened present to the benighted past. Watch The Handmaid's Tale, and you are back in your worst colonial collective memory. Just by rearranging the emphasis on attention, you can travel back in time while staying in the same place, to colonial times, or to yesterday in Alabama. Nostalgia didn't used to be a dead end, but nostalgia is a dead end, especially now. We are approaching the future, and it looks like crap, yet we are compelled to think of the past because, eh, it's the only thing we can remember. We are prisoners of our mental deficiencies. Look, it happens. It happened in Rome. It happened in medieval Europe. It happened in 20th century Europe. It happens because our institutions are adolescent. They're stuck in a puerile stage of development. They repeatedly promise reform because the people and the obvious awfulness of the situation demand it, but like lazy teenagers, they continue the same behavior that burned the house down and wrecked the car last time and the time before. They haven't got the maturity to address their issues in an honest way. It's a story as old as time. Caveman teenagers were just as bad. It's not the teenager's fault. It's the fact that our institutions must be indulged and endured as if they were recalcitrant puberty sufferers lying for the sake of convenience, just wanting to get high because life in the suburbs is so stultifyingly boring. I was walking up a hill among some trees just after a rain, a bird twittering amid the foliage beside the path, and I had a great sense of being in North America. Remember North America? And of course I was and am in North America, but I had a deep sense of it. And I had just been listening to a podcast about Mary Shelley's novel, Frankenstein, and one scholar had been talking about the landscape descriptions in the novel, the Scottish landscape, the Tyrolean, the Swiss, the Alpine landscapes, how nature was thought of back then. 
and Rousseau and the notion of the noble savage and how the creature was a tabula rasa at birth, but society's intolerance made him a monster. The natural world is conjured up in Chernobyl on HBO. So nostalgic, so bucolic. It all reminds me of the woods around Eastport, Michigan, near Torch Lake, where both M&Ms, Marshall Mathers and Michael Moore, have habitations. Remember M&M? Imagine his nostalgia. Nostalgia for the Detroit of his youth, which was the Detroit of my high school years, which was like the Detroit of today, but with fewer highways, high-end cafes, and combination bicycle, watch, baseball mitt shops. Did Eminem ever go to the cider mill, do you think? Can you picture a young, urban, and white Eminem chilling at the cider mill with his posse, eating a bag of crunchy fried donuts, a brown paper bag stained with donut grease, drinking brown cider out of a styrofoam cup, a water wheel behind him, wheeling water from the Rouge River. I bet he said a lot of stupid things, a whole mess of blarney, as they call it in the Ireland's of someone else's youth. How dizzy I get from the vapor of nostalgia for the Ireland of someone else's childhood. Just beautiful, all this memory and current existence, this pink slime of time's guts. It was a different world when Aretha Franklin and Muhammad Ali were alive in their 20s and 30s and 40s. It was a different world. There was something to live for. Soul, bravery, an end to a racist war. These days, soul is on the market, bravery is scarce, and racist, capitalist, imperialist wars have proven themselves never-ending. Bravery is impossible. There's just no room for it. The spectacle has evolved to devour and assimilate even the most radical gesture. Even the community work of Nipsey Hussle is quietly savored and swallowed, melting in the mouth of the beast like a throat lozenge. Not to say we haven't made progress. We're much closer to the world predicted in the movie Soylent Green. Remember that movie? Spoiler alert. It was made out of people. That's where the phrase Soylent Green is made out of people comes from. Remember those apocalyptic movies of the late 60s, early 70s? Looking back, how naive, yet how prescient were their predictions of the future. Of course you can't remember the future, you can only remember the past. So the only future I can remember is the one predicted by Rollerball and Soylent Green and Planet of the Apes. That future is all in the past. The very idea that we even have a future is passe. The future itself, the time reached after time has passed beneath our feet, brushed past our cheeks, or streamed over the, through the sky over our heads, is a time whose time has passed. The future is a time whose time has passed. The present is all the past was lumbering toward. It's the barrier all our hopes crash into where they pile up in a heap of garbage because they can't go any further. So we should either climb over the rubbish heap of the past into the future or get serious about clearing it away. We can't keep standing here admiring it, picking out this and that thing we want to salvage, but we're going to. We're going to linger here. Sadly, we must face the fact that the generation that got us to this point is not the generation to lead the way forward. No one over 35 today can see their way out of this wilderness because we're stopped at the barrier. We worship the barrier. We buy and sell the barrier. We set up camp here like Milo Minderbinder or Mother Courage living off the barrier, running our little concessions, this and that, recycled Q-tips, bicycle wheels, reclaimed rags, crackers made of people. I suggest we use a chair as a table a table as a bed, and a walk-in closet as a gym. Just selling each other the same trash over and over. Wasn't there some rumor that we were in a new millennium? It hasn't taken yet. Clustered around the trash heap of the past, wheeling and dealing like money changers in the temple, the next generation is here, though. We need to let them pass, at least not prevent them from clearing a path 
through the accumulation of mistakes and sins and habitual failures. We may be doomed to resurrect our leadership from the graveyard of failure, but there is another generation coming up. The least we could do is put on our hazard lights so they know they can go around, wave them around, go around, go around. Leave us here. We're happy here. You go ahead. We're going to worship some old jackass and keep eating cold leftover french fries out of this to-go container, building our huts of corrugated plastic and plywood. We're used to it. We dug a groove in the album. We're fine. Just leave us here. You go on ahead. Make something of yourselves. Make something besides soylent green of yourselves. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. Stay beautiful, Jeffy. We're up against the clock, so I got to let you go. I hear you, baby. All right. Live from the rotting corpse that is Broadcast Radio, this is Hell. Don't forget to subscribe to patreon.com slash thisishell to get an additional podcast throughout the week and to be part of, if you sign, if you go over there now and you listen to the last podcast, you'll find out how to be part of our Presidential Primary Fantasy League. Alex, who do we have on next week's show? Uh, next week, we have Astra Taylor on. We were really excited about to have her talk about her book, Democracy May Not Exist, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone. Also, Garrison Lovely will be on to talk about his current affairs piece, Make America Trip Again. And finally, uh, well, not finally, but finally for now, Susie Lee will be on to talk about her Catalyst Journal article, The Case for Open Borders. This is hell where the coolest musicians get their news. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Follow us on Twitter, at This Is Hell Radio. Like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash This Is Hell Radio. Thanks to all of our guests today. Jasper Burns, who wrote the article, Between the Devil and the Green New Deal. Thanks to uh, Jenny O'Dell, who talked to us about her new book, How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. Also thanks to Bhaskar Sankara, author of the new book, The Socialist Manifesto, and Marshall Auerbach, who wrote the Salon.com article, Boeing might represent the greatest indictment of the 21st century capitalism. This week's Hangover Cure is the second favorite cure of the Irish. Breakfast roll. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. There's only one way to get over all the problems that we've introduced to you on this morning's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying these simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. Ah. My demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.